follow the Four Corners Podcast on social media. Like us on Facebook, Four Corners Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Podcast Four Corners. And check us out on Instagram, Four Corners Podcast. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review. I want to take this time to apologize to the television audience for what they're about to see. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Four Corners Podcast. I'm Shad here with Matt and Brad. Guys, how are you? Uh, doing good, Shad. Awesome. I'm doing good as well. Glad to hear it. We want to thank everybody out there for being with us. Um, we have a special show for tonight, but we we want to get our shout-outs done first. The first one is going to go to Collar and Elbow, the wrestling brand. <clears throat> collar and elbow brand.com use the promo code four corners podcast that is the number four capital c and corners capital p and podcast save 10 percent off of your order and then our next shout out we're gonna hand that ball to matt uh yeah that'd be to orlando cologne you know shad yeah it's now technically fall yeah the summer is dead and gone the leaves are going to start turning a, a nice golden brown. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to see Orlando Cologne enjoying a nice pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> Maybe he and I can go apple picking or all things fall. You know, I'm not a fan of the pumpkin spice flavoring. You know, I when it first came out, I was all about it. And then I went for many years thinking it, was, it, it wasn't good. But we actually, my wife and I got a couple... We've gone a couple times at this Target down the street and got a pumpkin spice latte. And I don't know, the girl who, uh, the barista working there actually knows how to make it really well. So I'm kind of enjoying them again. Yeah, I think I think we talked about this on the last episode of the episode before about the the um, challenges of going to Starbucks. Yeah, I, I, I continue to emphasize that, to my opinion, Starbucks is not good coffee. Um, it's only good if you're getting one of those specialty drinks, but yeah. uh, I, as I've mentioned, like the perils of that is that they're like 500 calories each. Oh God, it's terrible. And so it's like hmm, I can have a, a nice lunch that will be fulfilling and nourishing, or I can have this pumpkin spice latte. I can have. You're not a, having coffee. You're having a milkshake. Yeah, I can and have they, a grande white chocolate mocha. And they they cram it full of sugar. Like my wife got me one like when I was in like the throes of my diet like a couple years ago, and like. It, it screwed me like all sorts of ways because like I like one drink had as much sugar as I was eating in like a week mm-hmm. and like my body did not know what to do. It's like, wait a minute, like this isn't right. Like I can't drink Mountain Dew anymore because it makes my teeth hurt. <laughs> you know, what's, like, you know, what's surprisingly decent is the Mountain Dew Zero. Um, <clears throat> see, I like Mountain Dew, a diet Mountain Dew. Yeah. That's and good. the Zero to me tastes like slightly off which i i have to drink i must drink a lot of <laughs> diet mountain dude for me to be able to even tell um, well sometimes it's just off I, I, a friend of the show 
Damien Gonzalez uh, questions why, how I can even drink Diet Mountain Dew. It's not but, bad. Diet uh, Mountain Dew's not bad. Diet Dr. Pepper isn't bad. And Diet A&W Root Beer isn't bad. In terms of, uh, in terms of like the actual like like major soda brands, like I probably like Mountain Dew, Diet Mountain Dew the best. I probably default to Diet Pepsi in that case, but I try and get tea more than anywhere else. I or only else when I go out. I only drink um, diet sodas. Yes. Yeah, because so. uh, years ago, like I'm almost, I, I, it's at, it's over 15 years at this point. When I changed my diet to eat healthy, uh, I basically cut out quote unquote regular sodas, mm-hmm. so non diet sodas, and I basically never went back. And like the rare occasions, I'll even have like a sip yeah. of a real soda. It it's disgusting. Like I feel like I can actually taste the corn syrup. It just tastes like I'm literally eating a spoonful of sugar. It's it's too yeah. much. The only thing the only thing that I will that I will tolerate like a sip of here and there is the um, the bottled Coke that has the cane sugar instead of the uh, corn syrup. They're sometimes marketed uh, in certain places down here as as a quote unquote Mexican Coke. Yeah, I guess they're they're done. They're 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 advertises that here, but it's just the glass bottle Coke. I yeah. um, I used <laughs> other friend of, friend of the show uh, Justin. Um, ah, yeah. I yes, I he just, he marked that on hearing that just now. I guarantee it. But uh, he he messaged me last week and he's like, I have a question for you. And he's like, Okay. I was like, Okay, go ahead. He's like, I've heard this thing in the south. Well, what's what's the deal with boiled peanuts? I say you put mm. them in glass bottle Coke, and he went what? That sounds disgusting. I said it sounds that way, but you get you get some salty peanuts in a glass bottle Coke, and you just put the peanuts in the Coke. It's got to be glass bottle. You don't put it in a can of Coke, and uh, it will blow your mind at how enjoyable it is. And he's mm-hmm. just like, yeah. I, 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 he, he was he was so flummoxed. He's like, I need to go to the south now to to see what this food is because i'm missing something (laughs) i i talk to justin every day and he he messaged me about that he's like how come i have never had this i'm like i don't know man it's a southern thing it's a southern united states thing never had the boiled peanuts or the i don't think he had either boiled peanuts or boiled peanuts in a can of in a sorry in a bottle of coke yeah, I, you bring up an excellent point, by the way. That's really kind of no one talks about this. Yeah, soda tastes vastly different depending upon the mm-hmm. the vessel that you drink it from. Oh yes, like a glass choice. A glass bottle Coke tastes different than an aluminum can Coke. Tastes different up, than a plastic bottle Coke. It picks up. It picks up a bit of the can flavoring. When it's in a can, if you ask That's me. It's mildly horrifying because it's like, what chemicals am I consuming? In well, addition I'd to. Always, I'd attributed it to the fact that it just like heats and cools differently in aluminum than in a glass bottle. But Maybe. The only um, regular beverage, like uh, quote unquote regular soft drink, I have um, on any kind of regular cycle it is it's Central Kentucky. It's AL8. And. It's it, it's hard for me to explain. It is it is like if ginger ale was more so, and it's it's just it's my jam. But 
the diet and the diet caffeine, the diet caffeine free tastes closer to the uh, original than the diet does. But I love all of them. And so, I. So it's like a ginger ale? It is. Or is it like a ginger kind of, beer? No, it's not a ginger beer. Um, I've had ginger beer. It did not. It's like if, if you were to. They, they call it a ginger citrus drink. Mm. But. Uh, and I guess that's as good a way to describe it as anything else. But. For to me, who's been who's been drinking that for so long, I'm just like, it it just tastes like ale. <laughs> I know you're not supposed to define something with itself, but that's that's what it is. So, do you, have either of you gotten in on the whole flavored water craze? But what, do you, what do you mean by flavored water? Like seltzer water, uh, flavored uh, seltzer water. Like uh, uh, I tried. If you're really frou frou. You get you. Oh, my daughter's like <laughs> your daughter's you like, not a fan of it. If hearing. you do like frou frou, you get like the Lacroix. Oh. But I mean, you can I've have never there's had Lacroix. I tried uh, and it it tasted like sweat. <laughs> um, I'll do. I, I do it. I do it for the podcast sometimes because it helps my voice survive, especially if we're like double recording for four or five hours. Um, it helps my voice to stay okay. And sometimes I'll get it flavored, and like I'll get like I get White Claw here and there, which is flavored, oh, like a, obviously. A, but... a hard seltzer. Yeah. Mm. For for some reason, that's I'm a trying very to... that's a very basic white girl <laughs> alcoholic drink. <laughs> I... True story. Like the dude who owns White Claw. Like I mean, White Claw I think just popped in the market maybe like two years ago. Yeah. And that dude, the dude who created it, literally is like a billionaire now. Yeah. Because that's ain't that no law when it comes to White Claw. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, people keep trying to imitate it. Like everyone has their version of it now. Oh yeah. And my mm-hmm. wife has tried a couple, but they never get it right. Like White Claw got it. Yeah. I've it's, actually never had one. It's pretty good. I because like I'm not like a heavy drinker, but what I like about that is um, a can's pretty low calorie if you just want like something alcoholic while you're grilling or something. Instead yeah, I think it, that's I think that's why a lot of you know white girl yeah. <laughs> drink it because. It's low calories. You can you can watch your figure. It's and, low calorie, but it it'll get you drunk. Yeah. And it's it's either and it's that's easy to find. Like because my other drink of choice is like cider boys drinks, but those I have to go to like Whole Foods or a place with like a, a heavier selection of alcohol to get. So mm-hmm. it's just easier to get the White Claw. And I'm not you as know, dependent on the, them mm-hmm. having season like. Because Cider Boys has, like, you can get standard apple cider year-round and, like, one or two others, but then their their flavors cycle as the year goes, so you can't always get what you want based on the time of year. Yeah. I For cider, I don't – I, I, I kind of like – if I'm, I don't usually drink it, but if I drink it, I want, like, a dry cider because sometimes the, the ciders get, like, way too sweet for me, and that's why I kind of shy away from them because it, it's – if you ever see Cider Boys, like, somewhere has it, I would recommend trying it because <laughs> I've tried, like, other ciders. Like, I think Angry Orchard's actually not terrible. Um, uh, it's not bad. No. It, that's not as sweet. No. It's better, it's, but it's, but that, they're, like, they're, they do it, like, perfect. It's not too sweet. It tastes like cider with a little bite to it. Um, mm. Where I like Angry Orchard uh, above other things, it's not my favorite, but I don't hate it, is I like that angry orchard has a very like clean taste to it mm-hmm. um yeah 
there's a there's actually a cidery in DC uh, that I think they they make a certain they a limited amount of their own ciders, but they also import ciders. And they have they have I've been a couple times. They have ciders that they're so dry to drink them, they're almost like drinking a glass of like white wine. Ugh. It's actually very interesting. I'm actually really excited because right now it is like the fall, but it's also uh, it's Oktoberfest time. <laughs> so all the like October different type of Oktoberfest beers are popping up in the stores, and it's fantastic. That's like actually my, my favorite type of beer, like those kind of amber or German uh, beers. Like I love those; those are fantastic. I, I will say fall is my favorite time of year, especially like for the food perspective, but also... Oh, like, it's amazing. I love fall. Yeah, get, you can go to like to the farms around here and apple pick or go hit like a corn maze and stuff. It's just a f- more fun type of year, and it's it's it gets cold enough that I can like have a fire in the fire pit any night mm-hmm. I want. Fire in the fire pit. I, I feel like that, uh, at least visually, I look best when I'm in a, a place with you know, like jacket weather or something like that. It's where my particular panache comes through. When you can layer, oh, layer huh? clothing. Well, not not even so much that. It's just, it, it feels to me, I feel more confident that way because I feel like I'll just pull that look off better. He's just saying that he likes that his Flapjack Norton um, cosplay is acceptable in the <laughs> fall. <laughs> well, Brad finally pulled us around to our... To what segue. a segue. Yes. yes, it was very well done. Uh, here, give you some applause for that. Did you uh, guys watch sitting that? around going, it's, "Is the special episode going to be talking about like beer and, and southern cuisine?" Which I can't talk to beer, but southern cuisine. No, there, there's going to be a day where we like start an episode meaning to talk about something, and it's going to be like an hour and a half later, and we haven't gotten off of food, and we're just going to put that out as our like. What are we morning radio? It's yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, did either of you watch that awful promo that introduced him in the AWA with um, Nord the Barbarian? It took me a minute to realize it was John. Uh, it was Nord the Barbarian, John Nord. I, I hadn't watched AKA the promo. The no, um, yeah. it, it was a like I had the link sitting there and I accidentally closed the window and forgot to open it back up. Oh. But it's it's I knew it was John Nord. And I was like, oh, I've got to see this. And I'll, I'll go back and open it back up. But It was pretty much the... It, 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 was, it was always WWF at the time, terrible. It's like him talking about... He's introducing his new partner. He's talking about how, you know, after a hard day of lumberjacking, lumberjacks like <laughs> flapjacks and, you know, Scott Norton ate, like, some obscene amount of them. Um... There's, there's just, there's so many ways to go with this. I'm gonna go with, was he a lumberjack and he was okay? He well, slept all night and he worked all day. John Nord is kind of doing like a lumberjack gimmick at the time too. Well, I, I presumed as much. I was just hoping to drop a Monty Python reference. Oh. and Eric Bischoff was like the interviewer yeah, for that. Hmm. All right, I'm gonna go dig this up after after this is done. It's bad. I know that won't do it. It's yeah, I'm, it's not. It's not great. No. You know what? You know what? I'm okay with that. I'm all right with it. That'll be fine. 
So tonight, um, this is one I had actually kind of pushed on, and and Brad has been an advocate of getting me to watch more Japanese stuff. So these kind of flowed together. This uh, this is our apologies to Scott Norton episode for the Oz tournament. Um, this is going to be a, a rep retrospective of four Scott Norton matches in Japan. Brad, will you give us a little more background, please? Well, I would just say, like, Matt and I were kind of talking about this while we were watching the matches, and it really shocks me that WWF never tried to sign him because I was kind of trying to place him like, well, you know, like, he's not, like, hyper-athletic like a Vader or a Bam Bam Bigelow, and I don't think he's quite as good as Ray Trailer, but watching these matches, like, Scott Norton's kind of, like, underappreciated, and he's kind of, like, a good seller, and does like the wrestling thing pretty well. Mhm. Mhm. And I'm just shocked like all those stiffs they 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 cycled through from like 94 to like 97 and they didn't give him like a shot. There were two he... go, go ahead. ahead. No, no. Oh, go ahead. You you should go instead of my pithy <laughs> joke. Just trust me. I he came a lot. He was really more, I feel like a '90s guy. But if he he so he was kind of like coming in late. But he would have been like a perfect Hogan opponent as like a monster heel. I'd agree with that. Yeah. But they they still could have they still could have used him. Like he, I mean, he had good matches and he was capable of having good matches. But I don't know. Like I think he would have been great. They they should have done more with him. Like he would, he would have still worked probably in like even like the late '90s. They still could have found a use for him. Uh, I don't know, like because again, like with the '90s, like it was kind of after the Hogan era, and the mid '90s WWF slash WWE was so like weird. Like I, I feel he would have been a good. He would have. They would have been able to do something with him, but I also like I don't know how that would have worked. Because you don't want to bring him in. He, the, he, he has some, like, ridiculous gimmick. I know. <laughs> they would have probably brought back... The Red Rooster. <laughs> no, flap, Flapjack. Yeah. Oh, God. He would just been... Everyone knows the, the best wrestling uh, lumberjack was Big Josh from early <laughs> WCW. <laughs> but, like, even in, like, the... Even, like, when they were going through those stiffs in, like, the 2000s, like, you couldn't have brought him in instead of, like... Um, Nathan Jones or Vladimir Kozlov? Uh, I don't... I, I, I don't understand it. Because with... I guess the best I can come up with is with Kozlov, they were trying to do something different. But um, it, it, it's not... How like, long did Kozlov they, last? It feels like he was there forever, and I bet he was only there for like a year and a half. I think he was only there for like a couple of years. I have to look yeah, it up. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. He started off as a big deal, and then they sent him down to ECW to have uh, have Regal work with him, I think. So, um, but I was, like, I think they just, like Vince saw Nathan Jones and, and was like, no, we got to use him. You need to see more. Um, 
than than what you saw. <laughs> yeah. Or like Kenzo Suzuki, like you could have used Scott Norton instead of him. Mm-hmm. So looking up uh, on Wikipedia, uh, if, if we're not counting developmental, he debuted uh, on April 4th, 2008 on SmackDown. And it okay. looks like he he didn't leave the promotion until August 30th, 2011. Oh, he lasted a lot longer than I thought. So he was a little hmm. over. He was about uh, almost three and a half years on the main roster. Of course, like they didn't. It was like diminishing returns. Like, yeah. I, I he won. He didn't he win the tag. I mean, well, I can just look. He, I think he won the tag titles with. He won with Kenzo. Oh no, he won it with Santino Morella. Oh. God. oh. I forgot, like, they were doing, like, a comedy thing there for a while. I'm thinking of, like, Rene, du- Rene Dupree won yeah. the tag titles with Enzo Suzuki. Yeah. That was an odd pairing. So we, we stuck primarily to the 90s for this, but I'd call that his heyday, because I think he was starting to wind it down in Japan, like, by about 2002. Maybe a little later. Mm-hmm. So, um... So we picked four matches for this. Um, because this is Japan, obviously, the dates are important. So our um, our four matches are from August 10th, 1992, versus Masahiro Chono. Uh, from September 23rd, 1994, Scott Norton and Chris Benoit versus the Steiner Brothers. From September 23rd, 1998, Yuji Nagata versus Scott Norton. And from 1-4-1999, Scott Norton versus Keiji Muto. So I figured we'd just take these in, um, just in order and start with uh, the August 10th, 1992 match with uh, Masahiro Chono. This is, um, this is a quarterfinal for uh, the... In the G1 Climax, they actually went a little different this year, and this is just a single elimination tournament. And um, this is this tournament is for the vacant NWA World Heavyweight title. So they're fighting over big gold for this. Um, I don't remember who uh, Chono beat, but Norton beat Bam Bam Bigelow in round one. Okay. It was, you can tell it's the early 90s, if nothing else, by the ring gear. <laughs> Because Norton had like this red and orange striped test pattern gear. And, uh, oh, and the uh, and the mullet. He looked to me. He looked really young. Because he, I think by this time he was probably like thirty one. Um, and this is weird. And I probably I might be on my own little island here, but to me, like in the face, he looked like Hangman Page. There was like a similar type of look. I can see hmm. that. He definitely looks a lot younger than even, like, the 98 match. It looks like he aged a lot. Oh, he looks like he aged, like, 20 years in the span of, like, six or seven years. Yeah. Mm. I think a bald head does a lot for aging you. Yeah. Let's see. He's about 60 right now. So, he would have been, yeah. Um... There was well, we'll get to it whenever we get to the the '98 match because I, I I looked at that and I, I noticed something, but this was after Scott Norton's stint as um, uh, a world champion arm wrestler, mm-hmm. and um, 
he was a bodyguard for Prince. He was <laughs> a bodyguard for Prince, which is so funny because if you had if you had Prince walking around next to Scott Norton, then it would be it would be like that one blue collar dad who's disappointed in his son kind of visual going on. <laughs> Just the sheer size difference and look and everything. But, um, you know, Scott Norton had already, like, done some stuff before he started wrestling. So. Do you think they, um, do you think they consulted him for, um, Dave Chappelle's print skit? Oh, God, I wish. That's way, that's way dating myself. I still laugh about, um, the Charlie Murphy. (laughs) Who's up for a game of basketball? Uh, okay, I, I was wrong. He was a bodyguard I, for Prince in nine uh, during the nineteen ninety nine and Purple Rain tours. So yeah. that was eighty four, and I don't I don't have the year on the 90, 1999 tour, but that was like you know five years beforehand, five six. Uh, I want to just throw out a really random fact that you can uh, you can have if anyone ever does this sort of really esoteric wrestling trivia uh when prince died uh his the vault containing uh his possessions yeah. was, uh, was drilled open uh by the uh i guess the uh, administrator of the estate the executor yeah. of the estate Geraldo, uh, making it to that, um, <laughs> al capone vault <laughs> uh and of course you find like the usual items like there was apparently like tons of uh masters for new music to the i'm sure that they'll release yeah. albums of po- posthumously but uh some of the things included in the vault are apparently wrestling related items they wouldn't say exactly what they were i think but uh there were some wrestling items found in the vault really yes including uh one thing noted was a uh some sort of coco beware documentary film <laughs> which i would be curious to see um so maybe Prince was actually a secret wrestling fan. I bet you, he seems like the sort who would be. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. One of those me. really things that he'd be like, he was, it's like a really weird down-to-earth type of thing that he'd be into. Now I imagining the of it would appeal to someone like him, too. Yeah. I'm Now I'm sitting here imagining that Dave Chappelle is Prince from that skit, sitting on a couch, watching Ric Flair... Like sitting there with like a snifter of brandy or something, swirling it, going, "I like that robe. My next tour, I should have three like it." Come here, bitch. Have sex with Charlie Murphy. <laughs> Dark purple, light purple, and purple purple. <laughs> anyway, the match. Um, Norton makes an entrance into this with taped ribs. I'm mm. guessing because. It's the G1. It was probably in close sequence, and like they were doing it kind of as a sell job of from his match with Bam Bam. But I I know I've seen this whole like what was out there on tape of this tournament like years ago, but I don't really remember it, so I don't remember their match. Ah, okay. It would make sense though if you if you're in the ring with Bam Bam that he'd probably jack your ribs up pretty good, or give you a hernia maybe. Yeah. Um. Okay, all right. So, 
I, I note that because it is important. And we know um, and, we, we know from we know from stories later in life that Bam Bam was like a legit tough guy. So, yeah. Have you guys heard that story? I don't know how well known it is about how. Um, when did he die? Uh, uh, a while back, but not. Let me let me look. Well, like two thousand seven. Okay. Um, okay. So it's probably not related, but so there's a story pretty much from like 2001 or so, and I think it might have ended his wrestling career, but he he suffered like burns to like 30 to 40% of his body because there was a forest fire and he like ran in and like saved a bunch of kids, but like got really burned up in the process. Yeah, I've got that pulled up right now. It was a 2000. Second degree burns over 40% of his body pulling kids out of three kids out of a fire in New Jersey. And spent ten days in the hospital. So my thing was always like, could you imagine being in a fire, and you're you're on death's door, and you just see that like running towards you? <laughs> you know him coming in with the with the flames tattooed on his head already. Um, that's that's just a that's quite an image. Yeah, so this is also interesting timing because this is this is legitimately like a month before Steve Austin breaks Chono's neck. So this is a rare like Chono before he had like all those neck problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which if if you've seen like a, a kind of a broader um, spectrum of Chono's career, it completely changed Chono's style. Yeah, I actually think I, I would. There's people who put Chono. Chono, I think it's Chono, Muto, and Shinya Hashimoto. They kind of group those three together uh, in terms of like their era, like the late two, the two, like the nineteen nineties and then like the early two thousands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would I would actually say Chono overall was is kind of very a legendary uh, worker. But if you have seen any of his early nineties stuff before the neck injury, it did dramatically change him. Mm-hmm. He was still able to manage and, and work a different style and actually be very successful. And uh, he had a lot of charisma, so he was able, actually able to to become a big star. But it really is like dramatically different. How, never the how same. It, never the no, same. No, he never. Though. He was never the same. Yeah. So, um, in in watching this, the match starts off, and I've got a note here. There's there's some. Early, early spots that Scott Norton, you know, Norton is Norton is, I mean, big. I'm not probably not particularly tall. His build height is six three, but he's just big, and he gets in there, and it, especially at this point, Chono's he's a little leaner, and he's. He, He's like just shy of almost kind of lanky. Norton just runs him over, mm-hmm. and that that's that's like a regular spot for Norton going forward. Is his if he comes to shoulder block you, it's not like a lot of guys will hit a shoulder block and you'll stop. Norton just keeps going, and it doesn't really slow him down. And then right after that, there is this awesome power slam. And I'd written in my notes, I said, who did what? Because I couldn't figure out if Norton's power, if, if the power slam was because 
Chono, I mean, really went up for it, or if Norton just, I mean, took him over. But it, they went high, and they went over. They went over pretty fast. So it was really. That was a really cool early spot to see. I forgot too because I haven't seen a Chono match in a long time, but like you instantly remember it. That um, that kind of noise Chono makes while he's wrestling is like unforgettable, and it's like almost like a a comfort. Like when you watch Chono matches, like oh yeah, this sounds like normal. It's it's almost kind of like the sounds Ming makes when he wrestles. Yeah, you're right. It's hard to describe. It's like it's like this weird like like guttural thing he does. Yeah. It's Almost sim- kind of kind of this half cough thing. Yeah. Uh, a little bit, yeah. See, I now that you say that, I'm glad you said that because I th- <laughs> I thought there was some old dude sitting next to the camera just <laughs> like hawking up a lung during the match. Nope, that's Chono. He I didn't that know that was match. him. I didn't know that was Chono. Oh yeah, he'll do that never. He'll do that in every match. Okay. Like I said, it's very um, it's very Ming esque because Ming always did that. Because someone asked, I think, Ming once, like, if he was, like, if that was, like, a different language or something. He's like, nah, I'm just saying gibberish. I do not remember, like, that that Ming would kind of, like, mutter or grumble things or Mm -hmm. growl or something. So it's kind of like, kind of like Foley would do. Foley's out there talking while he's uh, doing stuff. Yeah. It's, Okay. I'm glad you cleared that up because it's in my notes here. Is like, you no, know, is there an old dude dying next to the camera or something? No, that's Chono. Like I said, if you if you watch more matches of his, he always that's because I I sometimes wonder if um I sometimes wonder if he's not doing that like for character purposes purposes if he has some sort of like martial training and like that's how he breathes for athletic like uh, exertion like he's doing if, if it's kind of like part of the the concept behind doing key eyes and stuff like that yeah I've, I've kind of wondered if maybe it's just like a weird breathing things to keep him like from blowing up oh that makes sense that yeah. makes sense um let me see i'm just looking for some stuff another thing that happens in the course of this and it it happens early but it's like a really establishing point is there's a there's a point where i think i think he was um no he norton took a hip toss that he really went up for and then chono starts putting boots into his head and norton doesn't even like turn his head for some of them he just like takes that and just like death glares back at chono and it's just like, you know what? If I if I'm having a scrap with a dude like that, um, I, uh, you probably just convinced me to quit. I'm hitting you with these big heavy shots and you're just glaring at me like that. Yeah. Sorry, I'm killing the flow no, of something fine. off. You're fine. I Sometimes I'm just listening and I... I don't respond quick enough. <laughs> I um I like that that Shono kept going for the STF, and I completely forgot that Shono used the S 
used the SDF. Did he? I don't think he originated it. Was that wasn't that um wasn't that Luthez? Luthez, yeah. 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 Uh, but I forgot that was like a big thing of his. Um, because no, and it really strikes me like no one actually uses the STF nowadays that I can think of. I mean, obviously, like John Cena's thing. I think. Yeah, yeah, Cena, Cena used it like infrequently. I felt the the STFU, but I mean, let's be realistic. Like Cena is, he's not even like a part timer. Like he's basically like Undertaker now, where it's like he's gonna maybe pop up once a year for like Mania. Yeah. So I don't know why that people don't don't basically just start using that and if it's not if you don't want it like the wwe like i don't know why someone in aew or in the indies just to start using it because to me it's like a really great uh submission finisher Mm -hmm. it looks really cool it's believable that you're like torquing some guy's knee to and and using like the like the the well not choke but like the the neck hold too Mm -hmm. uh I once, I think I only saw this, saw him do it like maybe once in one match, and I forget who he even did it to. But Regal did a version of it. I think it was Regal did a version of it. Wasn't Regal the Regal stretch? Yeah, Regal stretch. Yeah. yeah, he did the Regal stretch. But there was one where it was a, a modified Regal stretch slash STF, where he he did the ST he locked the the leg with one of his uh, one of his legs, and then he he. Uh, trapped a guy's arm behind uh, behind his other leg and then used his hands to torque the other guy's arm. So it was like an STF slash like almost like rings of Saturn combined. And it just looked absolutely brutal. Like, I bet it did. Yeah. It, uh, uh, man, now I miss, Re- <laughs> I miss, I miss <laughs> William Regal. There's, people don't really use like submission moves much anymore, though. No, you don't like, see it a lot now. I was even thinking the other day, like, I really wish someone would like whip out the stump puller. Okay, yeah. And like even the STF, that just got me thinking about submission holds I miss. I think it's because you have to basically you have to you have to essentially like teach the audience you have to sell it and get it over and there's a certain psychology to it yeah, yeah. And so then you pretty much have to structure your style around yeah it one way or another and nowadays i feel like a lot of a lot of what you're going to see is not it's not geared towards that it's supposed to be like this your finisher is like an, some sort of explosive move that you can just bust out of nowhere yeah and put a guy over uh put the guy uh, down but i I don't know. I kind of wish they would do more um, submission stuff. At least, at least if certain workers could like work it in, or at least yeah. have well, you know, be, do like the Japanese style where a guy has like two or three finishers, really. Yeah. I, I was always a uh, a big fan of the idea of having, for lack of a better term, some sort of impact finisher and a submission finish, mm-hmm. and then that way it's you know you're not locked into any one uh, particular way to end a match. There's You've got different options. And from another perspective, if you're having a match with a guy who, uh, let's just say that he's, um, you know, if, if you're a mid-sized guy 
and you end up going against someone who's way bigger than you, then you need a different weapon to go to. And to, to be able to um, bust out like a submission finish or something would be, a, I always thought it would be a real good way to, to kind of mix it up and be like, well, I'm not beating him the way I usually do. Let's go to my, uh, my other trick. But I don't think that in America that people wouldn't do it. I just think that Honestly, people watching WWE are conditioned to just looking for one thing to finish it with. And, um, yeah, okay, like, Flair pretty much only ever had the figure four or something like that. Okay, that's a fair enough point, but I'm not convinced that it wouldn't work. Uh, I'm I'm fair certain that it it would go just fine. Sorry, I did it again. No, you're fine. Um, so I thought this was a pretty solid um, first match for our retrospective. Um, Let me see. There's a few things. that Norton really sells the ribs in this that to, to lead to the finish. Actually, like, Norton's selling is something that I picked up on across all of the matches. Yeah. He he had a he went into a bear hug at one point and the bear hug he like went and cinched up the bear hug and then let Chono go and clutched his ribs because it was putting too much on him to to hold it and then um, there was where is it later somewhere later in this um, just running down real quick oh at the finish he he does this big power slam and then rolls over holding his ribs and does. What's, what's basically a, a non-standard cover. So his cover is not what you see like every other time during the match. It's just, he just kind of like leans up and throws an arm over his shoulders. And Shono um, kicks out. And then the, the dangest thing is to see a good match or a good finish to a match that involves an abdominal stretch. <laughs> I could not remember ever seeing that before, but um, yeah, his his selling played such a huge role in this. I liked uh, that finish because I, I liked that it, it had a logical consistency to it. That mm-hmm. his Norton's ribs were damaged; he was working over the ribs, and then it finally it actually um, it actually paid off, like using the the abdominal stretch to. On the on the damaged ribs, like it was a, uh, it was very consistent. It made mm-hmm. sense, so I appreciated that. And that, I did too. I think I think that really reminded me of why I started to really like Japanese wrestling. Is like they're not afraid to go off script like that and do something that you wouldn't expect, but makes sense within the context of the match. Because I was a little taken aback at first, like, oh wait, no, um, that actually makes like perfect sense. Yeah, I, I like. I really liked that finish too. I thought it was, oh God, it just it fit so nicely. So let's see. So our next one, we have two on the same date. Actually, that's interesting. So we're gonna go a year into the future to September twenty third, nineteen ninety four. Scott Norton and Chris Benoit taking on the Steiner brothers. 
This is the first um, Benoit match I have probably watched in a number of years. We've Not, done one I mean, other Benoit match on this show. We have, actually, yes. Uh, you're right, you're right. I forgot about that. Because we commented but that we other were uncomfortable than... with his him getting his head slammed in the bathroom door. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. I'm sorry. But other than that, that and this are the first of his matches that I have watched in a very, very long time. So it was... Uh, that it just took me a little adjusting at the beginning. <laughs> Um. Uh, before we talk about Benoit, I, I, I just want to, I just want to mention like this is the Steiners in Japan, mm-hmm. so you know it's going to be absolutely awesome, and they're going to just beat the shit out of <laughs> their opponents. Boy, yeah. do they! I, I told, I, I, I made a note of it because it was cracking me up. Like Rick Steiner just beating the shit out of Benoit and laughing maniacally to taunt Scott Norton was cracking me up. Because he's just like, ah, ha, 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 like smack, smack, like, ah, ha, ha, like, and he's just doing that for, like, five minutes straight. The Steiners were really playing up the heel thing here, um, which, I don't know, for some reason I just didn't expect. It was a really but... smart... I, I don't know how often... Norton and Benoit teamed up, but it was really smart because that let Norton like sandbag them and do impressive spots where they picked him up for stuff, but then they could just chuck Benoit like a lawn dart wherever they wanted and he could sell their like bigger stuff. Like he could take like the suplex off the top rope and take the Steiner screwdriver and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I think I've got that in here somewhere is, is, uh, is I wasn't sure if, they still looked at Norton, and they were like, um, look, you're still kind of green enough that we're going to do it this way? Or was it just, like, on one hand, the ease of doing moves to one person, and then, on the other hand, the storytelling is, like, Norton's the physical presence in this match. You look at this, and like, Rick and Scott, like, nobody in this match is a slouch, but nobody, like, just seems to have the aura that Norton has. It felt like when it felt like when Norton and the Steiners were interacting is that is that the Steiners told him before the match to sandbag them and that if they could get them up for a move then then they could do it and it because it felt like when they got him up that they like really like had to like put some oomph really into had to it. go for it yeah yeah there was a spot that. Um... It was a, uh, like, Scott Norton and Rick Steiner had, like, this you-can't-suplex-me exchange. That was really good. I thought that was I thought that was and excellent. Then, yeah. So they're going back and forth with it, and then finally Norton's just like, screw it, and just chucks him. And, and just wings uh, Rick some, you know, just out into the ring. Because especially if you're, like, familiar with the Steiners, like... You're used to them just manhandling anyone and everyone, and then you have Scott Norton here, and, like, Rick can't, like, do what he wants. Yeah. It, it feeds into the the familiarity in a good way. It's like, oh, you know, it's the Steiners. They're going to throw people... Ooh, that's not what's happening. Yeah. 
And I thought Benoit was a good addition because then they could do that to Benoit. <laughs> uh, and they did do it to Benoit. <laughs> oh, they oh yes, they did. <laughs> good lord. There was a... Um... There was a spot early in the match where I, I didn't. I was like, "Did was Rick doing a power slam or a hip toss or a belly to belly here on Benoit?" Because I, I couldn't tell which one it was. He did all, all I knew three. was Benoit tucked in the air, so he would he would bump correctly. He did all three at once, sir. Uh, I wouldn't doubt because Rick was just kind of like, "Yeah, here we go." Actually, I thought um, I thought Rick actually shined a lot more in this match than Scott did. I think, yeah, you're right about that. He was, Rick was like workhorse, workhorse in this. You kind of because you kind of forget like if you're if you're like us and you remember like the dying days of WCW when like Rick was getting really bad and old, like you forget like he was really fucking good like at one point in his career. He went through a phase where there was, oh, you remember the, the, the stories we've heard about the, the taping schedules of yore and how crazy they were. So it kind of seems like that there was definitely this phase of, um, some folks just, I mean, absolutely not caring one way or the other because they were just like, you know, screw it. No one's going to pay attention to this. And I, I wasn't sure if, if Rick was in that mindset or if he was just, I don't know, just flat, uh, just running down or not. Because you notice it, though, like if you watch like some of that WCW stuff, like when they would do those tapings on the weekend shows, like you can tell everyone's going like half speed and then you'll get like Ray Trailer out there and he's just going full bore on everyone. You're like, oh, like someone uh, someone uh, takes pride in their work. Either that or it's like, hey, I'm getting on TV. I'm not going to waste this opportunity. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Um, let's see. There's a one other thing that stood out to me in this match is that everybody in it looks very technically proficient. Except Norton, who looks like a shaved bear. Right? Like. Because the Steiners, you know, doing suplexes and that, so the Waz doing the technical stuff and the mat wrestling. And then here comes Norton, and he's just like, boom, you know, just hammers people. And it fits. Like, of all the people you expect to see, just because um, you don't expect a lot of people to just come in and, like, whoop up on the Steiners. Like, even the Outsiders didn't do that. Like the outsiders had under, underhanded tactics to keep ahead of them and things like that. No, this is this is like Norton whooping up on him looks right here. Yeah. Well, he really stands out because like there isn't there are big guys in New Japan, but there aren't like a bunch of them, so it's not like he's he's not lost in a sea of hossery. Okay. Mm-hmm. That is that is context I'm without. Yeah, like I mean, you, because uh, like guys like Madabu Nakanishi were big, and um, like Kensuke Sasaki was a big dude, but they weren't like they weren't like roided up like muscle freaks. 
Yeah, at no point do I think would I accuse Scott Norton of that because the dude lo- looks strong. He doesn't look like showy strong or like puffy strong. He just looks. He's like Mark Henry like size. He like looks more like Mark Henry than. Yeah. He has a. He has a really. He's. A, I would say odd, but I guess a, a more uh, diplomatic way. It's like a, a unique body structure. Mm-hmm. He's. You've you've heard the term like barrel chested like this that that term applies to if it applies to, to anyone it applies to Scott Norton he looks yeah he looks basically like someone uh, put arms and legs and a and a little head on just a, a fifty five gallon drum he's just a a big human being yeah I've heard interesting uh, stories about people that have met him um. Cause I guess he, I guess like he's a super nice dude, but like if he's just walking somewhere, like it's very intense. He, he has a look of being intense. Yeah. Uh, I think if I, I'd have to ask him to double check, but I believe friend of the show, Christy Petrillo has had either met him or had conversations with him. Uh, I think to try and do a potentially to do a figure of him for a figure mm-hmm. company. And from what I've, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he said that all the interactions has, have been like very pleasant. I've never met anyone that's had a bad thing to say about him, and I know more than one person that's like t- dealt with him. In some of, of, there are some people that you hear stories about them having bad interactions, and you can attribute that to a million different things, right? You know, they're having a bad day caught at a bad time um maybe he was just a prick i don't know but it's it's rare that you come across someone that there seems to be a universal good opinion of um you know it's like uh, foley and norton it's not a long list you know you know surprisingly a lot of people always have nice things to say about his iron cheek Everyone seems to love him. He seems like your kind of like honorary uncle. I I was in a locker room with a guy who'd worked at a show that Sheik was on. And he said, no, we ought to have him come in. And I'm like, dude, can he work with anybody? He goes, no, no, no. You don't get it. You get him out there and you have him go out and sign autographs and yell and take pictures and stuff. And then after that, he just sits in the locker room and drinks beer and jokes around with you. It's not mm-hmm. beer, like, it's medicine. <laughs> it's the gimmick, brother. You know, uh, d- to go into Shiki though, um, someone else who's universally loved is Nikolai Volkov. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh, yeah. I was listening to a shoot interview, and he was talking about, like, you know, working with Sheik and traveling with him. And he said it used to drive him nuts because they would be late for a flight. And if fans came up to the Iron Sheik and, like, wanted an autograph or a picture, like, he said, like, the Sheik would never say no. And if he complained, the Sheik would be like, fuck you. Like, these are our feds. <laughs> and, like, would just, like, not hear, like, not stopping to, you know, to um, interact positively with fans. I mean, if I can get patriotic for a moment, yeah. you're talking about two dudes who literally we, – we, we have actually – not that everything is, like, world peace – 
but we have reached a level uh, right now in the year 2020, pandemic aside, we have reached like a, a, an era of stability for the most part, uh, where people nowadays don't really appreciate this. But it's like those are two dudes who literally defected from really like oppressive yeah, uh, she, like, almost, environment. She like almost got murdered like by like yeah. the regime that he mm. fled. Like, I think his friend yeah. did. Like, the Sheik story is fascinating, but it's, like, terrifying mm-hmm. and sad at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, Nikolai grew up under, like, the oppression of Soviet Russia, the yeah. Soviet Empire. Like, both of those dudes are, like, they they were able to, they were, like, true, they they loved America because they, they appreciated how... They were able to be free and and basically like live a dream and be remembered and adored by like thousands of people, millions of people maybe even. And we're still talking about them years later. I mean, Sheik's still alive, thankfully. Um, Nikolai obviously passed away in like the last year or two, but like those are two I, dudes uh, who like appreciate it. So yeah, I can I, I can imagine. I don't, I don't fucking know how Sheiky's alive, but oh, I don't know either. I actually did mm-hmm. moderated a panel at a little uh, local convention that. Um, Nikolai Volkov was on. It was Nikolai Volkov, uh, Bushwalker Luke, and Tito Santana. And Volkov was the nicest, happiest, genial dude. It was it was about a month before he passed away. Mm. And he was just... He, he had the full gimmick. He had like this red windbreaker, you know, bright red windbreaker with like the Soviet flag on it. And he had the, the round Soviet cap with all the emblems on it and stuff. But Super guy. I was looking for the picture of it. I actually, um, I actually make sure I was right. mailed him something like a number of years ago, and he signed it and mailed it back to me. That's cool. A friend of mine, uh, we kind of have like a running. It's like a shared joke, but we kind of have like a running joke where we are. He'll like send me stuff, uh, like tw- like <laughs> Sheik's Twitter feed, which I don't. He doesn't. He doesn't do his own twitter feed but no i wish he did, he's though. um it would, it would be amazing. but Sheik is kind of crazy so sometimes you will get like a video of him out there that it's him being cheeky uh but my friend uh the friend who sends me this he's he kind of has an affinity for Sheik because uh he's persian okay. his family his family he it's in a weird way it's like i guess he, he kind of commiserate because he his family his father like basically escaped from Iran, yeah, uh, and escaped like he escaped in the late seventies because his family is a like Persian Jews, and they obviously when when the, the uh, Ayatollah started getting into power, like that uh, <laughs> that went real south real quick. Oh yeah, if you're of the Jewish faith, so I think he has like an affinity because obviously uh, Sheik is Persian and. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of shocked that Sheik is alive as well. Yeah, he's a fascinating life, though. I mean, that that documentary they did about him, um, I've only seen it once, but I enjoyed it. He's had a, a hard life too. Yeah, he has. Well, I mean, the only thing, think about this: the only thing that like, the only thing that like fucking saved his life is working with the U.S. Olympic team. That like pretty mm-hmm. much, that pretty much saved his life. Mm-hmm. Because it gave him an out. That's what I'm kind of looking looking up right now is to try and um, refresh my 
refresh my memory on it. But anyway, but, this uh, this match ends. Um, ends. They get Norton on the outside of the ring, and then Scotty gives the uh, the old Steiner screwdriver to uh, Benoit, and um, <laughs> they go and celebrate at Cracker Barrel afterwards. <laughs> that screwdriver makes me cringe every time I see it done to somebody. Um, that that move just, ugh. Yeah. I would say but, um, it it does strike me though, especially because this is still Scott Steiner and his um his like primish time. I know it's a joke, like talking about like you know when he was like the big bad booty daddy and he was talking about how he was a genetic freak and stuff. And um, it, you know that's not inaccurate if you like watch stuff of him when he was a younger dude. Yeah. Like, there's a video yeah, on YouTube really of him was. doing, like, a 450 to someone, like, in 1985. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's true. Uh, and it's it's kind of scary, for for lack of a better term, just someone that big being that that capable. It's like a, um, it's like a proto-Lesnar kind of thing. I don't know. I think he had some stuff over Lesnar, though, to be honest with you. I, it's not a perfect analogy. I just meant, like, I, like, because, I mean, he was still doing, like, the Frankensteiner, and he was getting up there in years, and it wasn't, like, terrible. Right. Um, it's just the, uh, it, it's just the idea of, of someone being that physically gifted and strong is kind of what I was driving at. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the whole tangent was that apparently Scott Norton fits that nice guy. Um, category as well, so... Oh, Kamala. Everyone loves Kamala, too. Like, everyone has okay. things to say about him. Kamala. Yeah. I can't get the way he said that in that promo out of my head. That's just stuck there. Anytime I hear someone say his name, in my head it repeats in that I voice. looked that dude's name up, because he did the other one. I think it was Michael St. John. He was, like, a radio guy that was local or something. Oh, Okay. But he has they they do his identity is known because I guess he did a lot of that stuff for for Memphis. Okay, okay. So then we go to what I think is the best match of the lot. So we go to um, nine twenty three nineteen ninety eight. So let's let's lay a little context to this match out. So um, Chono had won the won the IWGP title in August from Tatsumi Fujinami. But um, he had some neck issues, you know, that he hurt his neck in the process. And this go- ties back to his neck injury from Austin, obviously. So he vacated mm-hmm. the title a couple of days before this show. So Yuji Nagata and Scott Norton are fighting for the vacant IWGP title. Right. So and, it, and this just is... to go into culturally. So culturally, it's a little different now because um Japan is Americanized, but back in the day, if you got hurt, like, it wasn't seen as a good thing to try and, like, fight through injury and stuff. Like, there was kind of, like, not an honor in it, so you were kind of expected if you had any sort of injury that was, that wasn't minor, you 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 were expected to vacate the title. Okay. Just as an FYI, so if you if you look through the title histories of like the Triple Crowd or the IWGP title, you're going to see a lot of vacations due to injury. 
Okay, that makes sense. And I actually, I kind of like that. Yeah. Because it gives guys time to heal properly. And it's a, it's a, it adds a real sport element to it, which I think especially, like, New Japan goes for. Okay. So this is, I, I would say that this, the current, the, 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 the upcoming match is probably Scott Norton's best match that I've ever seen. And I think what the storyline of it is pretty much that Yuji Nagata knows that he can't win. And it's just him trying to like, desperately trying to prove himself wrong. And it didn't coming up short in the end. My familiarity with Yuji Nagata up to this point was really kind of uh, limited to his stint in WCW with Sonny Ono and, and his feud with Ultimate Dragon. Thing. Yeah, well, he he ditched the body armor thing and went to the 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 kind of shirt entrance attire that he has here. By the time he got to his um, that last feud he did with Ultimo Dragon, I think. He, you know, um, he he stuck around um, WCW longer than you think because he had a good match. Let me look it up. Oh, no, that was still Ultimo Dragon. I was going to say he, had, he and Ultimo had a good match at Halloween Havoc 97. Okay. Uh, that was the if Dragon wins, he gets five minutes on Sonny Ono, I think. I think so. And... I think Dragon was really was really hurt in that, like actually injured. Because yeah, I remember at the time it seemed odd to me to have that kind of stipulation and to have Dragon lose. I'm wondering if I'm wondering if this is because remember, um, I think it was '98, wasn't it, where he had that elbow problem and the doctors WCW hooked him up with fucked it up and like pretty much ended his career for a couple years probably that's that's probably what i'm thinking of is that he was this was the start of it what led to that or led to the time off for it maybe yeah um because i i think this is about where ultimate dragon starts becoming less of like a fixture like he has that really brief cruiserweight run where he beats eddie for it and then loses it to hooventude like within the course of like a week um, he had a TV title run in there as well. Th- that was past. That was um, that was in the spring of '97. So okay, that. all right. Then my timeline's just fuzzy. Okay, fair enough. The but my uh, takeaway. The other thing. My takeaway though. Go ahead. Going with what you were saying though, my takeaway from this match, and it kind of reminded me because I haven't seen a young Yuji Nagata like kind of what i've seen of him the last i don't know five years is like that guy on the undercard kind of working with the young lions like he might get like a nine minute match and it's just him like walking like a guy with 12 matches to his name through like you know hey let's do this this is how you get the crowd to react like mm-hmm. this is how you pace it like which is fascinating to watch actually um i really love those matches but i haven't seen him as like a young like uh, in his prime worker, and I was just, I was watching this match, and I'm like, I was like, god damn, like, I forgot, like, Yuji Nagata's, like, really fucking good. Yeah, he was, uh, I was kind of having this conversation with you guys offline, like, he's, he is a really great worker, 
and he's held the he held how, how many times has he held the IWGP title? Twice, but he had a he had a twice. He had the GHC title at some point too. Okay, um, it's unfortunate I think because he's he is a great worker and he's still a really um, he's still working and he still actually can can wrestle at a, a high level. I haven't seen it, but if he apparently had um, a really good match with uh, Minoru Suzuki just like a few weeks ago. Um, but right now he's, he's kind of like on the downswing of his career, obviously. So his, his role is to basically work with like the young boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of like a shame because I feel like he's going to kind of get almost lost in the shuffle. Like people will, if you're thinking about like top guys in Japan in the nineties, it's, it's kind of like the guys that I mentioned, like Chono, Muto, like Hashimoto, in the early 2000s, it's still you have like Mudo, like and Nagata's kind of in that realm. Nowadays, it's like Tanahashi, Okada, uh, Naito. It'll probably like even people will probably think of like Nakamura. Um, and I think like Nagata's kind of going to get lost in the shuffle, even though he's he was a he's a really great worker. And I was trying to think like who would we actually compare him to from for like an American perspective. I was saying Bachwinkle, I think for someone that was like probably close to world class but like people didn't see them at the proper time or they were like the head of a company like during the decline Mm. i was gonna say i was just looking at his wikipedia so i think what hurt him a lot was um he he like really was the top guy at the height of inoki's like MMA craze that was killing the company and he was like forcing guys to do like shoot fights and um, yeah. Nagata being like a technically proficient wrestler, I think like being forced into shoot fights really hurt him, and especially the shoot fights that he got forced into. So he re- he fought two MMA fights, um, and he lost both of them pretty horrifically. Do you guys want to know who they had him fight for his two MMA fights? Now you got me real nervous. You're not gonna like it because both of them are really bad. So, do you want to take a stab at water, both? I have it in front of me. Oh. When you say wait, when you say really bad, like really bad matchups, or the so let's like, just say this: he, this was going to be a, a garbage fight. He fought. He fought two fights, lost both of them. The two guys he fought were Mirko Krokop and Fedor. Oh God. And he oh. got smashed in both of them. And this is like why? This isn't, why wouldn't he be? Yeah. And this is 2001 and 2003 before, like, they had become, like, lesser fighters. Like, that was that was in kind of their their prime years. Oh, my gosh. Actually, like Krokop Cro- and Fedor. Krokop is still probably one of the most horrific knockouts I've ever seen was his second UFC fight where Gabriel Gonzale- Gonzalez just kicked his head off. Or is it Gonzaga? Gonzaga kicked his head off, and like as he's like passing out, he's like breaking his ankle, like because he's rolling it because he got KO'd oh, so bad. Oh, Lord! No, I, I I don't remember that. If I did see it, I might have blocked it out. Good night. Let me see if I can find video of it for you because no, 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 that's okay. <laughs> of all the stuff, you know, I've seen plenty of those kinds of knockouts. It was one of the worst ones I've ever seen. Um, the first, 
The first time Ronda got KO'd was pretty bad, too. I, I, I remember seeing that. Um, I don't remember the circumstances, but I did watch she it. She got head kicked, too. Okay. Pretty much you get head kicked, it's always bad. Yeah, yeah. So, one of the things, at least in the um, the video that I saw, is before this match, there was, this, there was a section pre-match, which I know had to be background, but since I don't know the language, I was kind of missing out. These, these four guys were having a match, and Nagata won, and so they're having this conversation in front of the cameras. And since I don't know what's going on, I'm trying to go by body language and tone. And the problem is that what I'm getting out of it is, you got this? Yeah, are you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. You got this? Hell yeah, I got this. Hell yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. You know, that, that that's not not to like be flipping about it, but that's that's really what I'm picking up is you know this is going to be a thing. Are you ready for a thing? It's like, I'm ready for a thing. So you're ready for the thing? Oh yeah, I'm I'm ready for the thing. Okay, if you're ready for the thing, yeah, I'm I'm ready for the thing. Yeah, um, I like when they do that because it was very real sporty. Like, I like the way they presented, like, the build-up to the match. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I didn't expect, like, given the time frame, this is not a shocker, but um, this is the New Japan NWO era. Yeah. Um, so I should have looked up the group for that. Uh, cause... I, I knew half of them. Um because Norton enters with uh, Fake Sting, uh, Michael Wall Street, and Brian Adams, but I don't know who the other guys are. Let's see. Who I, are on the other side of him? Uh, I was looking. I'm, I was. I, I'll look it up here. I was. I was teasing Shad that he should have. That he really missed his. Um, that he really missed his calling in life because he could have worked the Indies as Fake Sting or NWO <laughs> Sting. But, you know, spell it Sting with a, a one just to make it even worse. Maybe I could have been Stung. Yes. Oh, that's great. Or Stang. <laughs> no, no, no. Stang Stang was already claimed. I can't use Stang. Because um, who was it that kept pitching that to Sting to as a storyline? Um, Big Titan was one of them. Who the fuck's Big Titan? Rick Bogner. Big Titan, Rick, Rick, yeah. Oh, yeah, Fake Razor, okay. okay. Fake Razor, uh uh-huh. Okay, okay. There was somebody that they had a story about this dude kept wanting to work a program with Sting, where it'd be Stang. It wasn't like S.D. Jones, but that name keeps popping into my head, and I, I, I can't put a finger on why. Akira was also in the group. Okay. And Tenzan, and here is Sato. Or Sato. And Chono, obviously. Was Chono out there with him? I don't remember. He, he I was, don't think he was out there with he them. He was in some of the video leading up to it, but he was probably pretty hurt at the time. Yeah. That's what I was... You were saying, you know, he, he was out because he was hurt. So I... I didn't remember seeing him out there with them. No, I remember seeing him uh, in the the later one, I think, with Mudo. I don't think anybody entered with either one of them later. No, but, uh, you, but like they were around the ring, like Fake Sting was around the ring for the Oh, like, yeah, last that's night. true. Yeah. That's true. So we had this... Uh, we had this... Or this Jeff happen- Farmer, as, we, as he's better known. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
it makes me sad because whenever I hear that, I know they're talking about fake Sting and not jumping Jeff Farmer. Because I'm I'm always curious in the back of my mind is like, did jumping Jeff Farmer ever get better? He posted um, PWO every now and then. Seriously? Yeah. I think um he does, and I think um. There's one other guy. No, he might have posted. American Kickboxer posted on some board. That might have been DVD-R, though. Oh, that's a name I haven't heard in all, like, I know. a decade or so. Oh, I, I, I would say way past that. That's like that's like um, ECWA Super 8, like, 2000, <laughs> like, like, in the, like, promote, promoter wars, like, in the after mags like top 500 guys because they just had they just had um one of those those um top 500 guys on between the sheets with bix and zellner i think it was mr ooh la la i'll have to look that up for random stupid like indie workers that you only ever heard of through Looking at the PWI 500 every year. <laughs> I knew a guy who actually submitted his name to it, and he ended up uh, now like 453 or something. Do you think they just like throw a dart at the thing? Yeah, it was Mr. I, Ooh I, La Okay. I think that once you get down to that lower level, it's just whoever submitted something. Well, I think it, I think some of them were like joke ones because like the Japanese pool boy was like always like 499. Yeah. What did he have to do? Did he just have to send like a, a write up in and um, a picture? I there was there was a picture. I assume so, but he didn't tell me. Like he did it, and then it it kind of became a joke for all the other guys there because he he was not he was not top of the card in that company like remotely. So. Um, he just did that, and that always stuck in my mind. It's like I wonder how, uh, wonder how that worked. Um, we mentioned earlier that Norton looked different when he got to this point. He had the shaved head, and I wrote down. I said he looks both trimmer and thicker at this point. He looks massive. I I would uh, say he, he looked. He looked a lot trimmer for the match after this one, like for the dome show. He looked, he looked like he had mm. dropped a couple pounds. Yeah. But looks, he looks like a monster. Like he's, yeah. he's, just a giant human being. Veins like popping his, out of his neck. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's he's obvious. You know he's. He's pumped up. He's he's God, he's got the look locked down. What like he's just a scary looking dude. What I thought about this match was kind of interesting was he sold. I thought his selling in this match was really good, but I like that he sold vulnerability because he sold like some of the stuff Nagata was doing, like the arm lock and stuff. But Nagata was so good at selling like the hopelessness of it, like. You don't remember any of that. You're just like, wow, he just looked like a monster in this match. Yeah. Because especially at the end, the end is just like Nagata goes for something and he just pretty much powers him into his finisher and just like ends it. Yeah, Nagata did like like three 
of um, Inoki's back brain kicks in a row, trying to put Norton down, and Norton just soaks him. Which was different. It, it, it's funny during the course of the match, I made a note. I said, "It seems like place Norton knows how to sell in a way that." It puts the other guy over, but it doesn't hurt his beastly aura. Like, he just, he's no selling some stuff and he's picking stuff to sell, and he's got that figured out so well. Like, he's got that parsed out excellently. I, there was something that I did I did think was was interesting and it was good healing. I liked when they started to go into the chop exchange, and Norton obviously would have won any trading of blows. But because he's a bad guy, he just poked him in the eyes because he could, and it was easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. That was I saw that and I started laughing because they're going chop back and forth, and it's chop hit, chop hit, and then before Norton chops him again, he just leans over and sticks a thumb in the goddess eye before he chops him, because he can. And I think that's actually better healing than when guys like blatantly cheat, like. I like that stuff because I think that would in a, in a, in the U.S. I think that would actually make a crowd more mad. Was like I didn't have to cheat here, but I did it because I can. Just to be yeah. a dick. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's some quality healing. Like it. Like I like I like those little things. Like especially like you hit your guy with the finisher and you grab a handful of tights to like roll them up just because like I'm that much of a douche that I'm gonna cheat anyway. Yeah. You know, um, how did Raven put it once? He says, as a heel, you cheat for two reasons. Number one, you're cheating to get ahead because you have to. Or number two, you're cheating just because you can. That was um, and, that was a Jesse line, too, was um, winner. What, what, oh, fuck. What was it? It was like win or lose, always cheat or something. Yeah. Win if you can, lose if you have to, but always cheat. Yeah. That's a good line. <laughs> I, I, the story on this match was interesting. Like like Brad said, there's this this whole thing where Nagata's, he just keeps trying. He's in over his head, but he just keeps trying. He keeps trying. He keeps trying. But... My analogy to it was that it's like he's he's stuck under a boulder, and he can't quit because then it'll just crush him. And he knows he can't overcome it, but he's trying so hard, and eventually it just runs out on him. Um, and it's 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 interesting because you don't see that story very often. That's that's a that's a pretty unique match story and, in my experience. And they never really make you doubt the. I would say, I would say you never really doubt the outcome in this, except for maybe a brief minute when he has like one of those arm bars in really good. Uh, I liked so I liked that towards the end, like that spot, because um, it Norton did seem like inevitable because everything Nagata was throwing at him, it just it, Norton was just too powerful. Um, but what I did like at uh, towards the end was that whole like triangle choke he got him in, because uh, it really did seem like an excellent hope spot. Like the crowd, all of a sudden came alive during that, mm-hmm. 
And they thought, like, well, this might be it. This might be the finish. And it wasn't, but it really was, like, a, a really smart spot. Yeah, yeah. And I actually thought, um, I, Shad and I were talking about this off-air. I don't remember if Matt was there, but I thought this match played in tandem really well with the Muda match because they, um, which is our next match is from the Dome show a couple months later, um, for the IWGP title. But, um, yeah, the tandem of Nagata just can't quite figure out how to crack the Norton code, but Nagata, but, but I mean, but Muda in a similar situation actually like figures it out is like, it was interesting to watch back to back. Um, there is, there was a spot when we get to that match, there was a spot that sparked the switch. Um, but we'll, we'll get over to that. Like there was a specific spot where you can, you can point to where that changeover happened. So Shad, what did you think of um? What did you think of how they presented the title after he won? Because that's how they used to do it for all the championship changes, uh, but they don't really do that anymore. I mean, on one hand, I like it a lot because it's 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 definitely it's like it, this is a big deal. Um, I'm in a place where I, I look at it and I go, this would work as a like a sometimes thing in the states right like if if you if you were going to have a big win and present it and stuff like that there's sometimes when that would be fine and then like there might be some heels that demand you do it because they want all the pomp and circumstance or there might be some faces who do it because they're just drained but they're so grateful for it they're standing there with it but then there are other times like daniel bryan mania 30 you don't. You wouldn't do this then. No. Because you. That's this huge emotional swell that's going on right there, and you leave that alone, and you let that moment live on its own. Um, so it, I like it. it. It seems to me to be a. Um, it's a good tool to have. I, I wouldn't use it all the time. Um, so. That's that's what I where I would put it to kind of go along with that. So in, in all Japan in the 80s, I don't think they were doing it anymore in the 90s before a lot of their matches. Um, they would have uh, women present like the wrestlers with like a bouquet of flowers. It's kind mm, of like, I remember that a ceremonial thing. And the Freebirds did a tour once and they hand them the flowers and literally Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy literally touched the flowers long enough just to chuck them over their head. Like the second, like their hand, they get their hand, and they just like toss them. It was yeah. hilarious. Uh, it kind of seems to me that well, there are going to be some sometimes when uh, when going against the cultural norm works, and then there are going to be other times when you know, not so much. I I just but that's okay. Could you imagine letting like a twenty year old like Michael Hayes and like a twenty two year old Terry Gordy loose on another country like that. I just I couldn't imagine. It's like opening the the bull shoot at a rodeo and the bulls just come out and start running into stuff. I wonder if they ever let Michael Hayes back. I'm not sure I would. It it would be in I, I had a uh professor for a history class in college who um, 
he said, you know, here's the thing is in Japan, they don't they don't like the confrontation and they don't like saying no to stuff directly and that sort of thing. So uh, they they would have been like, ah, you know, it was great to have you here, but I bet you miss home. And he'd be like, well, I'd love to come back sometime and be like. I bet you miss home. Like, um, I bet, I bet you would like uh, South Korea a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Something of that. In nature. fact, I hear Canada's nice this time of year. Why don't you not even come <laughs> close to our country again? Like, that's a long like, flight. See, you don't need a. See, I'm going to, I'm going to draw this circle around Japan. This is about a two thousand mile radius. Like, stay out of this circle, please. No, they wouldn't get that confrontational. Um, I know a guy who, who he went and did an exchange program over there, and there are some countries. This is what he tells me. So if this is this is a myth that they tell as jokes to Americans, then um, then please pardon me on it. But some companies apparently have a role that's called the loud American role, who will march up to their boss and be like. Yeah, don't do this. This is stupid. Because they apparently, supposedly, rank and file will not. Um, it will not uh, like will not step up and, and and get in their boss's face over something being a terrible idea. But um, there's actually an interesting YouTube video. I'd have to find it. It's um, it's a. Uh... It's like a docu-series, and it follows this guy. And this is from a couple years ago, so this isn't like some antiquated '90s thing. It's a, it's a Japanese salary man, and it it follows him on like what his typical days like in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, damn, I could not do that. Yeah, with the hours and yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah, because because yeah. it's it's um, it's just it's it's a different culture. I just couldn't. Very, very different. I, I, I value my free time too much to um <laughs> to do it. Yeah. But it is it is interesting to see like what his days like and um the the guy has some interesting like he, he you know he's pretty open with it. You get to see what he does like the company he works for like what he does with his day. It's it's interesting. Um I would I try to Google I guess like day in the life of a salary man and see if it comes up like it's a it's a decently long video um I watch dumb shit on YouTube sometimes uh especially like I like sometimes watching um watching videos like that of like what the life of like someone like the day in the life of someone somewhere else or whatever I think those are always interesting or like those dumb videos of people and like other cultures trying like snack foods or like plates from other countries and seeing how they react to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I watch dumb shit. So what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, <clears throat> the, the Norton Nagata match was really good. It was, and it was, I would give it, I would probably give that. We don't always do snowflakes. But we only really do it for the good stuff. I would probably toss, Three and three fourths or four stars on that one. I'd call that a four star, definitely. I don't know that I would go that quite that far, um, but it is a good match. Yeah, it's probably. It, I would. I it would depend on my mood. I'd probably fall more in like the three and three fourths area. I think, but I mean, 
I get I, I'm yeah. I get I get weird with that stuff. Like my my star ratings. I don't. That's why I don't do it because my star ratings are very dependent on my mood at any given time, and it can change a lot. So. So well, quick question. You said was this in the dome? No. What was? This might have been in the dome. It was. It had a. It had like its own name. So let me look here. Would, would that automatically make it like a Melcher six star or? No, it hadn't been a six star yet. Let's see. <laughs> Big Wednesday. The name of the show is Big Wednesday. <coughs> Let's see if this says where it was. This was nope. This was in Yokohama Arena. Okay. All right. So not six stars. Then. No. New Japan was kind of in a slump at this time. Like the work wasn't as good, and especially in the late '90s, it was all about <coughs> All Japan, not New Japan. Okay. Like if you were watching, if you were watching New Japan in this era, it was for the juniors, not the heavies. Um, okay. All right. So, because you go, you tended to watch, you watched um, All Japan for like the big, badass like big singles matches and tags like at the top of the cards and new japan you watched for the um the juniors and then if you wanted like deathmatch stuff you watched um is that fmw yeah fmw and there was um wing and there was one what was the other one iwa that stuff but yeah but fmw was like fmw is like a weird like FMW is kind of like your standard three three ring circus where they have juniors, they have the death matches, they have women, they have, you know, standard matches, and obviously Anita at the top. So the last one you had kind of foreshadowed was Scott Norton versus Keji Muto. Yep, and this is this is like um, I don't know, I'd have to look it up and. I should have, but I don't know if Scott Norton had any defenses between winning it in September and defending it against Muda in January. He had, what, two or three reigns with it, right? Uh, I think he had two. Cause he had one in, like, 2001 or something, I think. Okay. I, the the point I was getting at it is that it wasn't, he was, it was a fluke that he was... That, that he held it. Um, <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, two times for the, the heavyweight title. Okay. Cause I do remember, though, that I do remember, though, from this reign that he wore the belt on WCW TV, like, for a couple weeks when he was back between tours. Yes, he did. So, um, I do remember that, because that was my first... That's kind of, like... That kind of, like, raised my eyebrow, because, like, what? There's wrestling in other countries? And, like, Scott Norton's, like... No, I mean, like, it, it legitimately... It legitimately... This says he had four defenses. That seems like a lot. But he had four. Okay. I understand your statement, because I kind of had the same thing. But the thought that went through my head was, like, well, if he's world champion over there, why is he, like, at the end of hour one of Nitro? Yeah, I don't... I didn't have that reaction. I was kind of, like, fascinated by it. And I knew, like... I, I think I knew like Chono and Muda were um, were from there, and I think I realized Ultimate Dragon. But then I was playing the um, the like WCW versus the Worlds and like the N64 games and like 
Liger was on there as the unknown, and then I saw him in some clips of stuff, and I said, wait a minute, that's a real wrestler? That's just not some dude they made up for the game, and then I was, like, more fascinated by it, and that's kind of how I got into Japanese wrestling. I was still blown away at discovering that um, Aki Man, a.k.a. Man, THQ Man, was Misawa. I was like, wait, what? What? You know, whenever I, I discovered who, who the, because you know they're all modeled after someone. I thought that that was just like, I would just slap some random moves together that one of the developers liked. No, nope, but bizarre. no. Wow, I, I never touched that guy. One, I get my sixty-four hooked back up. I'm gonna have to try that. All right, so uh, Norton Mudo, what was January fourth, ninety-nine? Yep. It's, Dome okay. Show's always on January 4th, just FYI. Okay. So this was, it was, the thing that surprised me is it was it was an NWO versus NWO match. Yeah, I noticed that too. And the NWO Japan music is not catchy like the NWO North they're, American they're, music. No. The way it says NWO is kind of catchy, but then the music's not. Yeah. It, it. Just it sounds generic, doesn't it? Yeah. Matt, you 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 answered that rather emphatically. <laughs> it's not good, and we heard it twice because it was NWO Japan versus NWO Japan. Yeah. yeah. I completely, I completely zoned out on Muto being in in NWO Japan. It was. I feel the like. End. Like I don't think it was long. Let me look. I feel like. Because in like the late the late nineties, I um I maybe had dipped my toe into tape trading, but I had like a very limited amount, and so I didn't I didn't see a lot of late nineties uh, New Japan. I never got it, even when I was super into getting New Japan, because like the matches never seemed like super interesting. Yeah, I would say that when I didn't start seeing like a lot of New Japan stuff until probably like the 2000s and then i i skipped a lot of like late 90s new japan it was more like the earlier uh 90s or more modern stuff but uh i i think i recalled mudo being in nwo japan because he popped up like once or twice on like nitro maybe oh, he t- you know actually duh we're dumb <laughs> he he um he joined them in america because they brought him in to take on muda and then he turned on someone enjoying mm-hmm. the NWO. Mm. Oh, wow. I yeah. I, I, I can't believe I forgot that. Yeah, so he he joined them over here. Because remember they did that... Um, when they were doing that, the Steiner brothers were having to prep to take on the Outsiders, and they were going through teams. They had to go through <clears throat> Chona and, Chono and Muda on like, um, the Great American Bash that year. Oh, that's right. So, That's right. Yeah. Okay. I've seen when he so, left if he was there till the end. And it looks like they kind of started falling off until it turned into Team Black. Okay. Uh, did did the one you guys watch kind of cut off some of the early part of the match? It was like they yes. went to commercial. I don't know what happened yep. there. Because I was like, 
because I was confused because they showed like it, it was like a very overwrought um, like showed all the entrances and like some promo packages leading up to it. Then it was like some <laughs> random guy's face and suddenly um, Muda's like got him in like a, a leg locker, like got his like legs around his head or something. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it came back to, to Muto was, he had like a, um, uh, a triangle key lock going or something yeah. on Norton's arm going back to the arm again. Now the, the other funny thing that I got out of this was, cause I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm like, he's working the arm too. That didn't work too well for Nagata. And then I was like, well, on, on Scott Norton, what's, what other, what's your best option going to be work, <laughs> working the arm might be the best way to go and then norton just like deadlifts that deadlifts him out of that uh that key lock and so norton has this spread of offense and the thing that i noticed in this was that the strength in what norton did until he got uh all the way up to the power bomb i think was that his offense was not arm bent based strength it was more like lifting with you know, your core kind of stuff, which meant that the arm work wasn't really coming together either. Um, and then, and then something happens. I didn't expect at all. He goes for the power bomb. Mudo pulls a Rana counter out a her Karana counter out of it. And Norton goes all the way over in a big way for it. And I was just like, wow, I, I didn't expect that to happen. That was a pretty cool looking, yeah. cool looking move. It's a great visual. And the other thing I want to say about um, New Japan is the way their rings sound, especially the way they're mic'd. Like you get like a really satisfying thud when guys bump in New Japan. It's just a touch, just a touch more uh, solid. Well, no, that's not true. It's 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 more solid than the ones I worked in because the ones I worked in they were designed to be loud. Mm. Hey, can I ask you a question as a worker? What do you think of um, what do you think of New Japan having the more like the 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 corners having like the more boxing style padding to it instead of like turnbuckles? They have like the. It's funny because uh, I did notice that. Um, I, I, for the time, I think it did make them stand out. Um, I don't know that I like it overall, but maybe it's just because that's I'm I'm used to it to being like a regular wrestling turnbuckle, not yeah, not like the boxing style. It it, it doesn't it didn't really um. Yeah, it doesn't really it didn't really make a whole lot of difference to me. It just it to me it just looks different. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like, okay, we're doing that. Well, then I guess if you're going to do a, um, a, uh, you know, ring post spot, you've got a little, you've got a little more, uh, padding to work with. Yeah. So then, um, Muda decides he's going to change tactics here because the arms really not doing anything for him. I think that there was at some point in there he did uh, like a missile drop kick or something that went into the leg, and Norton went down hard for that. 
And so that's when he started in on it. Yeah. And and that, that was the shift. That's where the difference picked, and, kicked in. And this is really kind of was shocking to me is um so Norton past this point, Norton pretty much works underneath the rest of the match and he really excelled well at that for being a, like a monster persona heel. He sold so good. Cause his his like selling the figure four is like not overwrought. But you can tell, like, the way he sells it, you can tell, like, it hurts. Yeah. And and I like how they were doing the rope breaks. Like, so there was some, like, real good subtlety. Like, there's one point where Muda has him, and Norton's kind of, like, realizing, like, he really doesn't have it in him to scoot over. So he's, like, looking at the rope, and he's kind of, like, reaching to see if, like, somehow he can, like, mentally will it into his hand. And you can just see, like, what I thought was cool about it, and you don't see a lot. You can just see, like, Norton's on the ground, and he's in this figure four, and it really hurts. He can't get to the ropes. And you can just see, like, the gears turning in his head and him, like, trying to weigh his options or what he's going to do. Yeah. And you can kind of see him, like, taking, like, a mental inventory of where he is. Like, okay, well, I don't think I need to tap yet, but I can't get to the ropes. Like, okay, well, what am I going to do here? Like, there was a real... Yeah. You don't see that a lot in matches. Yeah, it, you don't... Norton was strong enough that it him taking a moment to look around and take stock made sense. Whereas, with... A lot of guys are going to be in a place when they're just... They feel like they're selling on an even enough level that they don't, they don't have the perceived durability to be able to go, okay, this is a time when all this is going, I can very obviously sit up and look around and decide what I'm going to do next. Yeah. So going forward, pretty much there's spots in between, but, but Muda pretty much keeps going back to the figure four because I think he kind of like realizes, he realizes he has him hurt, but I think he realizes that he can't let him stand up again. Yeah. So he tries to keep him on the mat. Um, there is in the uh, he does that until Norton gets to the power bomb again, and then there was something I thought was really interesting is he goes up like Norton takes him up for the power bomb. Muda holds on and does like the, the counter with the grab the head and do the head punches thing, but. Norton has been selling this leg so well that it, that's not what causes him to causes the power bomb not to happen. He takes him up, and while Muda's up there, he's got to hold the head. He's doing the punches. Norton buckles the leg and goes down. So that means that he the Muda went up, held on long enough for Norton's leg to give out. And I was just like, okay, wow, that is, that is quality. That, that's, I mean, that's great selling. And that, that really made that part of the story go. I was just like, man, that's good stuff. Yeah. And then Muda gets Dragon Screw Leg Whip, which um, Norton sells like <laughs> death. Um, the, this, this part shocked me. So, like, Norton's on his stomach a good distance from the turnbuckle and Muda goes up like he's going for the moonsault. Like, there's no way, like, like, he's in the wrong position and everything. And Muda, like, mm-hmm. hits, like, 
I mean, he got some distance on this moonsault to hit him. Mm-hmm. And then, he did. And then yeah. Norton did this slick thing because I don't know if he was supposed to be on his stomach or not. But, like, he actually kind of rolled with the moonsault to, like, put himself in a pinning predicament. Mm. It didn't look awkward at all. Like, he kind of rolled with the move or whatever so Muda could pin him so it didn't have to be, like, an awkward, like, flip him over deal. Mm-hmm. And then um, Muda goes back to the, the figure four, and this time, like, he's done enough damage and Norton gives up. Yeah. And this wasn't so. This one is not to me. This one was not as good as the Nagata match, but I thought this was like a really enjoyable. Like um, the narrative and like the strategies they were employing was really fun. So I still thought this was a pretty solid like domain event t- type of match. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it was it was good. I have a t- I have like difficulty thinking what uh which i like more actually i actually this might be a, a, a better match technically uh than the nagata match um i did the thing i i kind of i kind of gathered from norton like i while i do like him his style could get a little like slow um which i didn't at times i felt like that that wasn't it wasn't like like working for me essentially like he was he was moving a little slow with some in some of these matches uh which i don't know it didn't quite jibe with some like this match i I don't feel like it really jibed i don't know but in this match like it's not as if muto was like running circles around him like you could you could actually tell this is like muto's knees were in really bad shape at least to me it seemed to me because he was moving like pretty slow even gingerly at points. He seemed like he was in a lot of pain, actually. Yeah. It's crazy, because he just had his knees replaced like in the last like couple of years. And it's like, dude, you you, you could have done this 20 years ago. <laughs> no, but I think, I think honestly, though, because people talked about, they wondered why Kabashi crapped out so quick when he was such a great worker versus Muda. And people were like, well, because Muda was smarter with his body. Because, mm. like, that's the thing, like... I, I think, like, when he reinvented himself in 2001 and, like, really went with, like, a much more technical ground-based style with a Shining Wizard and, like, cut out, like, the big dives and stuff, I think he mm-hmm. I think he added 10 years onto his career. Yeah. I would say it also probably helps that um, he had, Foley in his book referred to Muda as having red light fever. So if they weren't on camera, he he dialed everything way down, and um, I imagine that's got to play a big role well, too. Actually, so so what happens on Japanese house shows? It's a lot different than here. So usually on a house show, um, you might get a singles match between like some students or like a vet and a student, but most of them are multis. So what happens is if you're going into a big show like your your house show matches are like combinations of the guys in the big matches in like six and eight man tags with each other. So what happens is when you're doing the house show circuit, you just come in and do your big spots and then you tag out and you kind of work at half speed and you don't like, you don't try and have like a blow away match. Like sometimes you do get good tags and, um, 
Or you get like a fun little like ten man like elimination match. But mm-hmm. you don't really so really in Japan and this goes back to then, like you only like do those big like blow away singles matches like once or twice a month, maybe like three times a month, and then obviously the G one's different, but that's like okay. one stretch a year. Well, fair enough. Um, Which I think I think shit. is probably better than what WWF does because they're not taking like they can, that gives them time to recover from like the the nicks and bruises of the big matches, and they don't have to go all out every night. Well, my understanding of, and I could I could be wrong, but my understanding of a lot of, like the last house show I went to, oh, Grant, it was a long time ago, but it was a mix of, it seemed like a mix of three things. Number one, you had guys who were basically just kind of goofing around having fun. Number two, you had guys who were trying out stuff for the next big show. Like the one I was on, had Shelton and Carlito working together. It was basically practice runs for the match they had at the next pay-per-view. Yeah. And then you had Ric Flair and Shawn Michaels just decide, we're going to go have a blow-away match. And it's like, what? Uh, so, you know, you could ju- you could just be like, you know what, we're just going to have a little fun tonight, and we're not going to kill ourselves over it. But I also think, and we've talked about in the show before, like kind of going into that verse, like the New Japan style, where I think WWE really shortens guys' careers is um, the demand that they flat back bump at all times instead of letting guys like decide what's best for them and maybe like, hey, my back's a little sore tonight. Hey, can I not bump a lot? Or hey, I'll do flat back bumps for you, like your big spots, but I'm going to like... I'm going to take one on the hip or I'm going to be a little more, I'm going to protect myself a little more tonight. We're in WWE. That doesn't seem to fly as much and you have to do it the same way every time. And I just feel like that fucks guys over. Yeah. There's some, <sighs> that, the schedule yeah. God, that they have to put up with. Cause if they had time to rest, kind of bounce back between some stuff that seems to me like that would that could help a lot and and i bring up the flat back bump thing because that's pretty much what ended ddp's career is going to wwe and they demanding he um he bump like that yeah i don't know what the other style's called i just know that you can cheat a bit and it still look okay well, you can you can have some bumps that you kind of roll with instead of just flat backing on or something like that. Um, it's I'd I'd have to go back and and watch some stuff and think about it in order to be able to kind of piece that out. But um, but I'm saying like I guess I'm, I guess what my assumption is is if you have flexibility in how you can bump in any given moment instead of the same type all the time. That you can do oh, what's yeah. best for your body and, like, preserve yourself longer. Yeah, and if, if you've got the flexibility to decide what you're doing in your match, you might be like, hey, you know, it, it, it might be a time when you're like, yeah, I'm, uh, let's do the, um, you know, let's let's do, like, the, the Lawler stall for this tonight and just 
you know, we'll we'll stall it for like five ten minutes before we really get into it. And because you know, I'm not doing real hot tonight, and you know, I could I could really use something a little bit easier. You know who might and, be the most brilliant wrestler of all time is our truth because he's getting a paycheck to not get destroyed. <laughs> and he's been doing it for years. He's been doing it for a long time. Like I, I, I don't think he's had like a real match in WWE for like years, and he's still taking a paycheck home. You might be right. Though I heard, I heard like when they did that stuff with Lesnar, like Lesnar loved it and wanted to do more stuff with him. You know what? Truth just kind of seems like a like a fun dude to work with. He does. Yeah. So. 48, 48 years old. Our truth. Forty-eight. Yeah. Wow. He's still like uh, he's in absolutely phenomenal shape for that age. Yeah. And because of like the style he's working, he can he can do this like uh, many more years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that dude's making some bank too because you know he's probably selling merch and stuff, and he's like, man, that guy's got the scam going. He has such like amazing charisma too that I mean he doesn't need to do much. And if he ever like if they don't renew his contract, he ever leaves the WWE, like that dude could travel around and and make bank on like the indies or doing conventions because it's like he's he's entertaining enough that he could like people would definitely he'd be in demand. Well, remember yeah. remember the early TNA um, pay per view yeah. era? Like they just brought him on as a mid carder. And he yeah. cut, like, one promo they let him do, and, like, he came out the next week, and the crowd just, like, went ballistic for him. Mm-hmm. And then he was the world champion, like, he went from being, like, just an afterthought that they signed to, like, the world champion in, like, two months. Yeah. I remember that. He was massively over. He was. Mm-hmm. That's where the, uh, the the truth aspect of his game it came from, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he was K-Crush, and then he pretty much... I'd have to find the promo. It's a pretty good promo, but he it was pretty much like a racial angle, and then he kind of just started going by Ron Killings, well, Ron the Truth Killings. Yeah. And then they went from there, and then Steamboat, who was the commissioner at the time, gave him a title shot after he asked for one. Yeah. So, um, I was going to say, just... From from doing this uh, retrospective, because I've always kind of had this this soft spot in my heart regarding Norton, just because he it, it always seemed like he had all these real these good tools together and that sort of stuff, and I hadn't seen enough of it. That um, I feel like, dude was. I, I feel like it's fair to say that he was pretty slept on in the states. I think he just wasn't flashy enough, to be honest with you. Well, he didn't work. Like you, you kind of you mentioned Vader and Bam Bam earlier, like that they had kind of different athleticism and stuff. Norton had a way of being like that. That didn't suit him, and it was a. Uh, you know, he didn't play to it. It didn't suit him. But what he did play to, just being that that 
slab of humanity that you would bounce off of and and would just just knock you down um, without breaking stride. It, it feels to me like they they could have done more with him, but it didn't happen. Yeah, I would agree uh, with that. He could have had a, a real interesting time. Um, it, can you imagine if he was the the NWO gatekeeper? It's like no, no, no. If you want to get at a title in the NWO, then step one is you got to get through Scott Norton. And so you could you could have this. You could tell a bunch of stories with that being, and it's like, okay, like Luger beat Norton because that's that's the level Luger's on. But other people going up against him are having to figure out new strategies, or you know, did can you know how can they what can they do to to put a spin on it to get around this just bruiser who keeps flattening people? Or you could even build a guy by by having him go toe to toe with Norton, and he ends up going down. But oh. He just he went at him so hard that he almost pulled it off, and then in a little bit he can come back and do it again. And you can still have the build. You could still have like an almost a title level build without having a title involved. I think what hurt him but, in WCW is being on the same roster as Ming, because I don't think Ming at that point was as good of a worker. But Ming still had that aura, and he had that like. <laughs> just being a crazy crazy guy like he just had that charisma going for him more than Norton did yeah that's that's fair I also feel that maybe because he was spending so much time in Japan like they didn't maybe they didn't really give him like a sustained push yeah that's that's mm-hmm. true I mean they did have him work like tag teams but uh it didn't really do a lot with him, but I feel like he was for the time for the point that they did use him. I feel he was booked fairly strong in the sense that he wasn't he wasn't just like losing to like random people here and there. Like he did, they did book him as like a legitimate like tough dude. It's just no, they protected him pretty well. Like I, I yeah, think it, I think he only lost to like your upper mid card guys. Yeah, his te- it's not as if they had like him him jobbing to like Rey Mysterio. Yeah, uh, but I think like I think his tag team with Buff Bagwell was pretty underrated at the time, but mm-hmm. it didn't last long. So, what can you do? Yeah, they didn't. Well, and they they didn't seem to do a whole lot with it. I think they had one pay per view uh, match against Harlem Heat, and maybe one against the Steiners. Um, maybe I, I just didn't get to see him do much was the frustrating thing is, you know, here's, here's Scott Norton. He's this, this, you know, beast of a human being that we've got. That's a scary looking dude. Uh, yeah, we've got him on our roster. Why do you ask? Are you, you going to do anything with him? Like what? I don't know. How about a tag team with Ice Train? <laughs> yeah, something. I kind of like that. that tag team. That was really, I, you know, that they didn't have anything to, for him to do. Just put it was like two big dudes. We'll put them in a tag team together. 
Yeah. Remember when they made they, the Ice Train a limo driver and he was like, am I smooth or something? Yeah. Uh, I saw the build into that, and the build was interesting. Because he did... Um, the, uh, like, Norton and Ice Train had a match on, I think, Saturday night that went to... Um, that, that went to a time limit. And then they were like, well, okay. I guess that went to a time limit. But then Norton was like, no, no, no. I'm impressed by how well he held up against me. This is someone I could work with. Yeah, I don't... So I don't have a lot of recollections of Ice Train, but I feel like he was better than... Um, than he wasn't like a total stiff. It's not like he was Roadblock? Oh, God. <laughs> it was it was um that that collection of like WCW jobbers like um Ron Reese who was you know Reese who sucked um mm-hmm. uh Rick Fuller who was a little better than Total Crap he wasn't like Roadblock bad Yeah, I remember Rick Fuller. And I will defend Van Hammer and say Van Hammer didn't totally suck in the ring, but he mostly sucked. <laughs> He at least tried. Just, I give guys credit if they try. Okay, I give the the thing that stuck out to me about Van Hammer is oddly enough, it's from the bullpen shoot interview. Um, they had an opener match at one of their spring break shows where they had like the ring suspended in the pool, and it's it's they told them before the match like nobody go in the pool. Mysterio and Flair are going to do that spot at the end of the night, and Payne's like, don't, you don't want to go in the pool, that wrecks your gear, you don't want to do that. He's having this match with Van Hammer, and Van Hammer, they're like three minutes in, and Hammer starts trying to throw him into the pool, over and over and over again. I remember, um, and, what, what, that was like 97, do you remember when, um, Jackie was, Jackie Moore was, um, Kevin Sullivan's, like, bodyguard? Very, very briefly. And, um, I remember they chucked a jobber in there one year because, like, when Kevin Sullivan would have, like, squash matches, he'd chuck him to the outside and Jackie would just beat the shit out of him. Mm. And I actually like that dude. That was the best I thought she ever was, is, like, a character. Was just, like... Oh, okay. Was just, like... It, it took me a minute to put a finger on it. You said Jackie Moore, and I'm like, are you talking about... I don't remember what they you called her. You say that, I know it is. She might have been Miss Jackie, or... She was, like, Miss USA or whatever when she was Jericho, and then, like, um... What was she... Was she just Jacqueline in WWE? Yeah. I remember she got her shirt ripped off on one of those, like, British pay-per-views in, like, 99. Uh, it's funny you mention that, because I actually just listened to the Laps Fan episode on that one. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, hold on. Let me actually look something up. Continue. Okay. Um, she was just Jacqueline in WWF, wasn't she? Yeah. Okay. Was she, and was she uh, Jacqueline in WCW. Uh, uh, was she like Miss Jackie? I think she might have Miss Jackie. Uh, so I did just look it up. Um. <laughs> the, I, I actually for some reason I recalled the specific jobber match that you were talking about and it was from March 10th 1997 
it was uh, Kevin Sullivan versus the very infamous Hardbody Harrison. Okay. And it was one of those ones when they were in Panama City, Florida, because like Jackie beats up Hardbody for a bit uh, when he gets thrown to, uh, outside the ring. And then at the very end, they chuck him into the pool. Shame they didn't fucking drown him. Yeah, for those... Uh, well, the reason why uh, Brad is uh, sharing that, for those who don't know, Hardbody Harrison was a, a WCW jobber. Uh, and in real life, a complete piece of shit. Uh, was oh, is yeah. currently oh, serving God, life in prison because he ran a sex trafficking and forced labor ring. Yeah, I w- he is a garbage human being, and he's uh, in prison for the rest I, of his life as he should. And I'm sure, I'm sure Kevin Sullivan and Jackie call each other like once a year, like, "Man, we should have drowned that motherfucker." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, because so, I, I have to. I should have called upon a Buddha Dean. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to do a. I need to figure out a Kevin Sullivan impression. I um. We I, need to get Chris on and just make him do it. Uh, <laughs> well, his, he would just. Chris could just naturally talk because he has that, <laughs> that New England accent. It's Christopher. It's the same. Uh, by the way, I texted uh, Christy Petrillo, friend of the show. Friend of the show, yeah. Zach we- Malibu. Uh, I texted him and he did respond. Uh, he has talked to Scott Norton. Yeah. Super nice guy. He would call me from time to time. Really? So uh, I trust uh, I trust Chris's word. Uh, apparently, uh, Scott Norton, very tough, looks kind of like a bear. Super nice guy. <laughs> He's one of those folks that I would like to meet at some point. Yeah. You know, he just... doesn't do the convention circuit. I think he would do well i figure he'd probably be in a place where he goes you know what i he may figure that it it would not be uh enough worth his time yeah that might like be true. he he wouldn't get enough um it's probably one of those he, ones who doesn't want to travel much yeah anymore i mean he spent all that time in japan you gotta think like you hit a point with that where you're just like you know what like home's good yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I've now that I've been to like a couple of them. Uh, if I was like a someone like Scott Norton, who you know I had a career that people would be interested in, maybe talking to me, get my autograph, signing something, I would at least do like the the WrestleCon shows because uh, you you can clean up in those. Yeah. That that conference. And you can be reasonably sure everybody there is going to know who you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And especially like, like, just do it once, man. Like be like go there. Do it once because you're a novelty and you've never done it before. Like everyone's gonna be like, "Well, I've seen Ric Flair three times, but I haven't seen Scott Norton." Like you're gonna, mm-hmm. you'll clean up on year one at least. Mm-hmm. Especially, but yeah, I'd, I'd especially him. To. Like just stomp around a bit, like through the convention hall, and people are like, "Oh my god, that's Scott Norton." Yeah. Yeah, I would like. He's someone I'd, I'd like to just. I don't know why he just he's he's got something that catches my eye, and so I'd like to meet him at some point. But. Can I uh, can I throw something else out there? Sure. Yeah. I'm only gonna reveal this because I I see that it's on Reddit or was on Reddit. Yeah. Uh, so he is actually going. They they are gonna have a. Uh, it's going to be a, a Scott Norton action figure from Figures Toy Company. Really? 
Yeah, and that's actually that was actually announced actually by Chris at Figures Toy Company back in March 2019. Oh. Uh, the information he's shared with me is that that figure was actually supposed to come out earlier this year, mm-hmm. um, and has been delayed because of COVID. Oh yeah, that that would be a. Um, but if you if if uh, anyone out there wants to to see uh, like the uh, the molding for the figure, uh, just Google like a Scott Norton action figure, and at least some of the molding is up. The sculpt is actually really good. Most of the action, most of it, most of theirs are pretty good. Yeah, there. It's unfortunate because of COVID that there's actually several figures that I, that are kind of like in the pipeline. I know they have like a Joey Janela one. Which the sculpt is actually really good. I don't know. I, can you get can you get that hair as perfect as like Joey Janela's is in real life? <laughs> <laughs> they're uh, they're because they couldn't do it in WrestleMania weekend. They are running the collective. Uh, I think in actually like three weeks. I know I have the Black Label Pro Show. I pre-ordered that, and that's October 11th. Because that had mm. um, that one had some like crazy matchups I wanted to see. Because that has um, yeah, they're right. That has what is it? It's um, it's Tom Lawler and someone versus Heath Slater and Darren Evans. No, Darren Young. Sorry. Mm. Who is teaming with? Oh, great! That's gonna drive me nuts now. Continue on. I must look it up now because I'm. What's Darren Young's real name? It's like Reese. It's like Fred. Something. Yeah, like Fred Reese or something. I didn't know Fred, who, Fred Rosser. Yeah, Fred Rosser. I because I was confused by it at first, but then I looked up who it was, and then I was like, oh. Uh, so I Tom Waller and Eric. Stevens. I haven't had. There we go. Mm, I haven't had a chance to see it, but uh, Darren Young slash Fred Rosser has been doing uh, matches for New Japan, the New Japan uh, United States oh, okay. division. Uh, Young Lions. What, what is it called? I think it's called the Young Lions. Um, and I haven't seen the matches, but allegedly they're like really good. Like he, he's holding his own. That's good. I, I, New Japan's strong. I had, um, I had, I always had a soft spot. I can't even think of what they're the primetime players, right? Primetime players. Mm. They, um, I, I always thought they were one of the best things going when they were in WWE. And I always feel like they got punished for being too entertaining. Probably. And they were like one of those rare acts you could tell just were having too much fun, like being goofballs. And yeah. then he what? I really. Was it his knee he, he destroyed? Like. He had a really serious. Injury. I don't recall. Let me look. Because he was out for like forever. I don't think I don't think he ever wrestled again for them after he had like the injury, did he? No, I don't think so. But I think he missed years. Let's look. The collective um, this year is it's, it's substantially more expensive. Uh, last year, I it was like a hundred bucks, but if you get all the shows, it's like one forty, which is uh, kind of pricey. Uh, that said, it looks like it's twelve different shows. So I was I was that a quick... I I thought about it just mm-hmm. for that um that twenty eight dollar credit because that's like two shows <laughs> worth of free stuff. That's true. Like you do get so it's one forty, but if you get like if you get twenty eight back, then it's that 
basically makes every show like mm, like ten dollars a show. Yeah, actually, probably a little better than that. I actually might get the whole package. I'll see. I'm I'm really curious about uh, the Black Label show. Joey Janela's Spring Break. He's I I think they just announced today that he's he's wrestling. Uh, I think he's wrestling Ricky Morton. Oh, that's interesting. Towards ACL. Yeah, I'm also. Uh, I'm also interested in uh, Bloodsport. It looks like uh, Moxley is actually he's finally gonna wrestle for them. Is that Josh Barnett on that show? Bloodsport? Yeah. I, I need to look at what that is. Those are always interesting. Um, because that they had that was that the Suzuki match they had last year. Mm-hmm. See if they have a card. I, ha- I hadn't looked it up recently, so I was just seeing that they don't have it. Ooh. Okay, I'll look that up because I'm um. Oh yeah, he is um, he's announced for Bloodsport three. Ooh, I'd kill to see Moxley and um, Barnett wrestle. Because Barnett's one of the rare um, MMA fighters. That was an MMA fighter first. I think really excels at like pro wrestling, considering his experience level with it. Wasn't he one of the ones that had like the finished a match with like an actual power bomb out of a triangle choke? Maybe. I think so. I think that was him. So Shad. Because uh, oh, sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. It's fine. I was going to ask you, so this is kind of like your second round of exposure to Japanese um, wrestling. So what have you what have you been thinking about it? Well, it's... Like you said, it's more sports style, which is, is fine. That's great. Um, I was trained in and worked a, a more, I guess story-based style more much more southern style kind of thing and it's it's not that i think it's bad it's like some of it's very good so like the you know obviously i gushed over some of the norton matches tonight but they're um just in general as a whole i'm not sure it it it, it hasn't yet grabbed me like other stuff has um it's it's good uh so I don't want you to hear that um, that I'm discounting. I don't I don't know if it's quite my cup of tea, but I'm I'm still willing to, to give it a shot and uh, to play with it some more and see what we come up with. What do you think of? I mean, I know I'm just scratching the surface. What do you, What do you think of like how they take their time and holds and stuff, and they're much more of like a struggle, and guys have to really they're... like wiggle their way out of them. I think it depends on the. At least for me, it's it it, de- it depends on on what you're doing with the match. You know, if the story of the match is that these this guy is scrappy and can squirm his way out and stuff like that, great, it works super well. But um, there are. You know, sometimes there are going to be matches where it's it's just like, no, you want this guy to be like slick and smooth and and super, 
you know, being able to, to get out of things. It's, it, it's a different baseline, I guess is what you're saying. And I'm, I'm trying to agree with you on, um, it, it is a change that I like. I can So as opposed to, I, I lay there in cold fish until I like shimmy around and get my leg yeah. on the ropes or something. I kind of felt like, um, this time around you had a little more to latch onto with the Nagata and the Muda matches than you did with the junior stuff. Like, I felt like you kind of, there was a little more investment because you're kind of, well, I guess the Liger Muda match we were all kind of into because that's such a bizarre, um, <laughs> you know, um, I, I mentioned this briefly to you guys off air, but I, I thought I'd mention on air, like, um, you know, with how bad WWE's been, I've been kind of like burnt out on wrestling for a couple of years. And, like, mm-hmm. sometimes you're always kind of looking for that spark you had, like, those first couple years where you were a fan where you just devoured it all. And, like, man, yeah. like, there was something about just that stupid Liger Muda match that just, like, it really it really kind of reignited that spark I have for wrestling, just, I think, because it was such, like, a batshit insane match. And, like, just reminded uh, you me... You get no argument from me out of it. And I think, like, just the train wreck of it, I was just like, oh, man, like... This is why I love wrestling because this match is so stupid and I love it. There's so many different. Uh, holy cow! I just found Vader versus Scott Norton uh, Battle Autumn '91 in New Japan. So I'm gonna watch that later. Um, it is. Uh, it's always nice to find something that just. I mean, makes it feel like. Um, you know, makes you makes you kind of feel like a kid again. Um, it does because, like, I was just sitting there, like, wide eyed, like, oh my gosh, like this is the craziest thing ever. I kind of, I kind of, it kind of. I think that that parking lot brawl at AEW would have done the same thing because I was just watching it and I'm like, this is this is just insane and it's glorious. Yeah, all oh, that parking lot brawl was so. Oh, good. It, Matt, you've got to watch it so we can gush about it on the show at some point. <laughs> I I am perpetually like weeks behind on my AEW because it's tough to watch tough to watch it during the I week. Know. So usually like on the on the weekends, my wife and I alternate. Like uh, she'll try to sleep in one of the days, and I'll try to sleep in the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because with a with an infant, it's like really difficult to do that. She because she's like a yeah. alarm clock. Like she's up yeah. at any point between like six thirty and like seven thirty. Like she's up. Um, so when it's one of my turns to watch her, like I'll have like AEW on in the background, uh, while I'm like playing with her or whatever. So that's, I only really usually only have it like once a week I watch AEW, but, um, I, I'm sure I'll get to that eventually. Um, what's really crazy to me just to, to discuss that very briefly, they've gotten, they've gotten Trent's mom, Sue over <laughs> to a yeah. ridiculous level. They did. Uh, I don't know. If... Mm-hmm. Like it's like when um it's like when Matt Hardy got um his gardener over. Yeah. 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 I don't know if you guys watch uh, Being the Elite. I don't usually watch it. Uh, but Justin uh mentioned it to me and the latest episode, and I watched it, and they <laughs> they have got. It, so that's I mean it's almost I feel like. Being the elite is 
it should be its own little universe um because it's definitely like not as serious and it's it's more comedic but Mm -hmm. uh they've been doing some stuff with sue in the dark order (laughs) that is actually hilarious oh really there was a great there is a great scene in the latest being the elite where uh the Dark Order guys are kind of clowning around and they're like making fun of Mr. Brody Lee. And Mr. Brody Lee like barges in and just starts berating them. And then Sue shows up and she's like brought food for everyone. And so all the Dark Order guys are like super excited. They're like, oh man, thanks, Mrs. <laughs> thanks, Mrs. Trent. Thanks, Sue. <laughs> like they're so excited to get the food. And Brody Lee, because he's pissed at them, he like throws it down on the floor. Like, well, she gives the food, and then she, like, steps out, so he, like, throws it on the floor, and then she, like, comes back in, and yeah. he's like, these guys just said they hate your food, and so she, she like, pretends that she's mad and tries to hit them with, like, some papers, but it doesn't work. Like, she botches it, <laughs> and <so laughs> she botches it, and you could tell, like, everyone's, like, wants to burst out laughing, so, so Brody Lee just starts yelling at them. It's like, you better fall down. You better... <laughs> He's basically like, you better sell. Sell for the botch. And so the guy, like, the guy does it. You have to watch it. It's like, it's I'm absolutely gonna, I'm hilarious. I'm going to turn it's that on so right tongue- after we, we sign off for the night because that sounds hilarious. It's so tongue-in-cheek, It's but it's hilarious. It's like, they're going with it. She Sue can't help it. Like, she starts laughing. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's it's very comedic. It's not very serious. I'm sure if Jim Croy would watch this, he'd like pop a blood vessel because it's not taking things ultra seriously. But it was it. It's all in good. Fun. It was it was just such a great brawl. Like there's so many things they did. Like they didn't use it, but I loved. He picks up this lead pipe at one point. And he's like clunking it on the ground, so you know like it's legit. Yeah. And he's doing it in such like, a way that you feel like you can like feel through the TV like the weight of it like it was it, they just did so much like so many great things that that moment whenever he starts tapping it on the ground feels it feels to me like it's a um, like it's got a little bit of influence of like Jack Nicholson in The Shining oh yeah it, it, he's doing that tap and that slow walk with it. And it's just um, it because it, it it's it's kind of kind of ominous, um, but I just I really uh, yeah I really I really liked that it, brawl that was really good. I, it might be a little hyperbolic, but I think Santana and Ortiz might legitimately be the best tag team act in wrestling right now. They're just so good at everything they do. That whole thing was just oh, so good. It, 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 it's not as good as Dustin Cody, but that's like really like not even a condemnation of it. That's that's the second best match they've done since they've been back, or since they've like become a thing. I just loved it. I'd have to think about it. I'm not sure where it compares, but whenever you, okay, if you think about matches that have been like away from the ring brawls, like think think about all of them, all the stuff that would qualify for that. I would think I think that this is absolutely the best one. Could you could you imagine like and I'm going to include Matt. I know he hasn't seen this. Can you could, when when AEW started? Could you imagine sitting here like a year and a half in and like two like some of their best matches are just absolute bloodfests and like brawls. 
actually I could because you given okay they made it a point to hire people who are professionals right mm-hmm. like they're not they're not just grabbing people to get them on the show that sort of stuff like they were like no 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 we want we want people who know what they're doing good um and then if you're like no 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 two of the best matches they have are going to be um the uh you know, are are going to be just these just throw down bloody brawls right and i'd be like oh i'll believe it because um you know, do, you know, WWE doesn't do stuff like that. They don't that. do blood. And so when you, no, when you have some guys who have an opportunity to do, to like really cut loose in that kind of setting, and they are um, professional and handle it well, you you better believe I, I I believe that they would do a good job with it. Well, I think I think that is it for tonight. Do you guys have anything to add before we sign off for the evening? <sighs> That's all I got. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> all right. When Matt gets to the parking well, lot brawl, we're going to do an episode on that. So, um, yeah, just we may just do the whole episode on the one. I'll watch it again. I I could I could literally watch that match a dozen times and find new like wrinkles <laughs> to it and enjoy it just as much as the first time. Well, we need to we need to keep a copy of it on hand for review purposes. You know, that, you know, like you know, when a match is so good, like you want to sit your wife down who's not necessarily into wrestling and show it to her because it was that good. I I I debated it. I I, I didn't I didn't because my wife's been busy. But like I almost I was like I was like like my wife gets random texts like excited texts when I'm watching something good. And like the only other times she's gotten texts like that is um the Cody Dustin match and um the PCO Walter match. Mm-hmm. The PC Wal- the PCO Walter match, I was just texting like I don't even know what the fuck I'm watching right now. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, this has been our uh Scott Norton showcase along with um some tangents sprinkled about. What do you guys think? Are we? Is there something that we're missing with uh, with Mr. Norton? Um, you agree? Disagree? You got any memories you want to share? We would love to hear from you on social media. Please hit us up. Um, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And this is Shad here with Matt and Brad. We've been in three quarters. You're in the fourth. And we will see you next time. <laughs>